Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Hey, everybody. Today, Rado talks through episode 15, which is all about Gen Con. All Gen Con, all the time. I am about to embark on an absolutely ridiculous mission of telling you about every single game that is apparently going to be showing up at Gen Con that I would personally be interested in checking out or potentially even buying. And, oh my gosh, there's so many of them. Well, before I get going, I should do a big shout-out to Eric Martin, uh, the head news guy of Board Game Geek, who, as ever, has created a wonderful geek list full of details about all the games that are coming. And I'm recording this on the 30th of July. And in all honesty, I thought I'd wait a few more days just in case a few more games squeak in, but I'm really feeling it. I'm thinking I'm going to sit down today and get her done. So apologies in case anything shows up in the last few days, but really, game publishers, you should have contacted Eric Martin weeks ago, months ago, to give him the information he needed to be able to include you on the geek list. I never understand board game publishers. It's like... They often seem to want to have the best-kept secret and not let anybody on Board Game Geek know. Anyway, um, so I might miss a few games. I'm sure there will be a few more that pop up. But I waited as long as I could, and I will wait no longer. And so I am going to do this in two parts, two separate lists. The first list is basically every game that I'm interested in that is for sale at the show, that in theory you could actually buy, although several of these you'll have to run at the uh, opening sounding of the bell because they won't have very many copies. And the second list I'll talk about is all the ones you can't buy but that you can play in demo form, and I'll be talking about why I, if I were there, I would try to play as many of them as possible. And so, hopefully this will be of some use to folks out there. I should warn you, Jen fans, sorry, she's not going to be making an appearance because this is just going to be, I don't know how many hours of me just blathering about a bunch of games, many of which we may never actually play. Who knows? Uh, but don't worry, she will be back next month, and I believe she'll be there for the entire podcast because by that point we will have such a huge backlogs of questions that she'll probably have to hang out for the whole thing. And as always, if you have any questions, by all means, please send them to questions at rotto.com and we'll try to get them covered next month. Sorry, folks, from last month's podcast who were left with kind of a Q&A cliffhanger and I promised I'd get back to all the questions, but we're going to have to wait one more month because Gen Con is upon us. Okay, folks. That's it. Are you ready to go? Well, sit down there right in that chair and let me show you how it's done right after this. Hey, 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 hey. Before, before we start this countdown, um, I realize it's very, very important to give one caveat that I kind of forgot to give when I originally recorded this, so I'm kind of stitching this into the middle of the podcast. Please bear in mind with the list you're about to hear, it's my list. And I have a very particular set of skills, or rather a very particular set of uh, requirements for what makes a good game for me and my wife. Has to work well with two-player. 
has to avoid any or all, or in almost all cases, any kind of player versus player stuff. Can't be sports related. Can't be modern military related. Uh, and other themes that my wife absolutely hates. Uh, she doesn't like horror films and you know various things. So there are a lot of really, really hot, 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 hot Gen Con games that everybody else and their mother is going to be putting at the list of their must-haves that I'm not even going to give a second thought to because I would never pick these games up in a million years because unless our beagle Dobby learns how to play board games with us, it's just me and Jen. We're not going to be able to play them. So why would I bother with your Sea Falls um, you know, and various and sundry other games? So bear that in mind. The 52 games I'm about to walk you through, I think, have the potential to be great games for only two that don't feature a lot of player interaction. I'm doing air quotes. I'm not really, but you can imagine I'm doing air quotes when I say that. I.e., not a lot of player fighting. Right. Got that? Okay, then hold on. We'll get to it in a sec. Okay, everybody. Are you comfy? Right. Let's get going on the games to buy at the show that I'm most excited about. And this is going to be a countdown. I just counted. There are 52 games I'm going to be talking about. And I'll be starting out with the one that I'm Every single one of these I'm interested in. Make no mistake. But I'll be starting out at the least interested, and by the end of the list, we'll be to frothing at the mouth, get out of my way, granny, I must have it territory. So it'll be countdown form. <clears throat> and of course, you know, like I already said, there's going to be some games that show up at the show that aren't going to be on this list potentially because the publishers didn't contact Eric Martin. Heck, sometimes they don't bother contacting him at all and they just show up at the show. Also, the list is always a little bit weird. Ostensibly, it's about games that are kind of making their North American debut at Gen Con. Of course, there's a lot of other games available at Gen Con. These are just like the new ones that are available. But that's not always the case. Some of these things have been available at like Origins or whatever. I'm not worrying about that at all. I just made this countdown following Eric Martin's geek list as the letter of the law. If it was on his list, it was good enough for me. So, without further ado, let's get going. Starting with Goons of New York 1901, which is the first expansion. Looks like a little tiny, just, you know, handful of cards expansion for New York 1901, which is an awesome Gateway family game. I did a run through for it quite a while ago, last year, if I recall correctly. And, um, you know, Jen and I, we really liked it when we first played it, but as time has gone on, we have found ourselves having a harder and harder time holding on to really great gateway games. I mean, we've lost all interest in playing Ticket to Ride, as an example. Carcassonne never really held our attention. And, um, yeah, it's just becoming a, a trickier thing for us to maintain enthusiasm for pure gateway games because we never need them. I, you know, whenever I do a run-through on it, I say, oh yeah, this would be really great if I ever had people over who don't play games. But that never happens. The only people who ever come here are gamers. But, you know, and, and that's very rare as well. Uh, so, New York 1901, because it was a phenomenal gateway game, but only a gateway game, you know, over time kind of had a hard time holding our attention. So, that's why I'm kind of interested in Goons, which adds new special player powers you get for having majorities in the different boroughs, or the different blocks of downtown New York that you're building. And that sounds really cool. Maybe that's going to be enough to uh, you know, give the game enough juice to keep us 
interested as gamers instead of as gateway gamers. So that's worth mentioning. That's probably worth checking out. Plus, I think if you head over to the Blue Orange booth where they'll be selling this, they'll also be having like special painted miniatures for the game that, and, you know, and other uh, you know, like promos and whatnot. So it's definitely worth checking out Goons of New York 1901. Next up, we've got Lotus, which is an absolutely gorgeous card game where each card is the petal of a flower. These beautiful flowers, including a lotus flower. And it's surprisingly, it's an area control game where players are playing cards out to you know, a, a common area, playing these flower petal cards to build flowers. And once a flower gets completed, whoever contributed the most to it wins the points related to that flower. And of course the tricky thing is at any given time you really you may not have the right cards. You might be able to start a flower, but if you don't have enough cards to finish it, you might be setting somebody else up to succeed. And there is like a public card drafting thing of being able to grab, you know, a, a trade in petal flower petals you have to get other ones you need and whatnot. Seems like a solid game. I'll be honest, I'm a little bit nervous about it because, you know, it is area control, and often area control is just a little bit too harsh and in your face for me and Jen. But on the other hand, oh my gosh, if you look at any screenshots of this, it looks like it is just gobsmackingly gorgeous. Plus, Jen loves flowers. So, kind of on the fence. That's why it's on the lower end of the excitement, but I'm still very, very interested in Lotus. And then next up, we have Medici, which is a classic, classic game from designer Reiner Knietje. I don't remember when the original came out, well before my time, and it's had a couple of reprints. And to be fair, we have Medici versus Strozzi, which is a two-player-only version of Medici. And the reason I'm interested in this is, well, I mean... Runner Kenichi's classic designs tend to be really phenomenal, whether you're talking about Tigers and Euphrates or Samurai or whichever one it might be. But the interesting thing is Medici was always originally a three-player minimum game. And now with this new reprint, not only has it gotten an absolutely stunning makeover from artist Vincent Dutrois, who is just you know one of the best board game artists working today, so it's gobsmackingly gorgeous, but Dr. Kenichia has revisited his old classic and has implemented new two-player rules. So, color me interested. I mean, Jen and I, we love a good two-player auction in a game like, say, Peloponnese. Maybe Medici will join the ranks. Very, very interested to find out. Next up, probably... This is an odd one for me to include, I'll have to admit, uh, because I suspect Jen will be really turned off by the theme, but maybe not. And I have to admit, I'm really, really interested in checking out Grimslingers, which is an alternative history, a fantasy American Western type thing, where there's magic and steampunk type uh, mecha, me you know, mechanical stuff in the American Old West, and players are gunslingers who are magically infused witches, and uh, so they cast spells, but they shoot six shooters and, and all this kind of stuff. The art looks gorgeous, looks, apps, looks incredibly evocative, really, really enticing. And it looks like it has kind of a sense of humor. I know one of the characters you can play is actually an enchanted gunslinging cat or something like that. Um, now, at the cart of it, it is a dueling game where players all sit around and, you know, draw and, and see who plays the right cards at the right time. 
And at its core, it's sort of a rock, paper, scissors thing. But it's rock, paper, scissors with benefits. There's all kinds of special powers on your rock, paper, scissor cards that you're going to play and try to surprise everybody. Uh, so I, I suspect the gameplay is solid. I mean, actually, uh, uh, Bowers Game Corner did a really, really raving review, and he kind of sold me on it based on his enthusiasm. But the duel, not really even remotely interested in. What I am interested in is... The game comes with two modes, the, the dueling shootout mode, but there's also a cooperative campaign mode where you can um, travel around on a map and still use the same basic gameplay, but go up against duels against you know story-driven characters who each have their own special decks that are full of special powers and whatnot, and players work together to try to survive the campaign. That's what gets me interested. That and the really wonderful evocative art, uh, um, uh, Forrest's really positive, positive review of it, and um, and you know just the promise of something different. I worry that Jen won't be interested because I mean it's in the title, Grim Slingers. It looks a little grim, but you know a good co-op is never something I'll turn my nose up at. So I'm definitely interested in giving it a try. Next up, we have Bezier Games. America, which is apparently a sequel to a popular series of board game trivia titles uh, called Fauna or something like that. I haven't ever played any of them. I mean, I'll be honest, you know, Jen and I have never really had much interest in trivia games. Trivia games, I think you really need to have more than two players to be at their best. Um, you know, these kind of pub quiz type things, and that's definitely what this is. But this one seems to have a fair amount of kind of Euro-style gameplay mechanisms woven in. And I have heard from more than one, uh, one reporter that actually it works really well and is kind of engaging as a two-player game also. Of course, all the trivia is going to be based on you know American pop culture and American history and, and all of that. And as an American, I think we'll, you know, can't help but have a kind of an interest in all the topics. Uh, I don't remember if there's one about American sports, though, in which case, bleh. But... I've heard lots of really, really good things about it. And I have to admit, I would not mind having somewhere on my shelf a trivia game. We don't have any. Maybe this is the one for us. America. Then we move on to Welcome Back to the Dungeon, which is the sequel to Welcome to the Dungeon, which is a re-implementation of a Japanese microgame called um, what's it? Dungeon of Mandom. And Jen and I, we have played, we have Dungeon of Mandom, which is a neat little push your luck, um, kind of like name that tune, but with um, dungeon delving instead of trying to figure out pop songs, um, where players are like, well, yeah, well, I can beat that dungeon in, in um, you know, with, uh, well, it's, it's a little more complicated than that. I'm, I'm oversimplifying it. But um, as players, you know, play cards and progressively, you know, get weaker and weaker and weaker, sooner or later, somebody's going to be stuck uh, in this kind of push your luck thing, delving the dungeon and hoping that they'll still have enough equipment after, you know, all players have kind of taken a hand in stripping this adventurer down to his skivvies. One player is going to be stuck adventuring. And if he was able to calculate correctly that even with the limited stuff I have, I've got enough to be able to beat whatever's in the dungeon... Then he wins, otherwise he loses. It's a really clever game. And Jen and I, we played as a two-player game and thought it worked wonderfully. In fact, when playing Dungeon of Mandom, we found we liked it more as a two-player game than with more. And so anyway, 
It was a neat little Japanese microgame, just about the only one we've ever liked. It got picked up and to the very popular reprint, Welcome to the Dungeon, which I've never actually played, but it looks lovely. And now that's getting a sequel, Welcome Back to the Dungeon. So, since I know I like Mandem, I've been interested in this for quite a while, just haven't ever gotten around to it. So it seems like it'd be worth checking out. Then we move on to Iki. And this is the first of several games that I'm talking about today that I've actually played. And in fact, I've actually even filmed a run-through of. You can go check out my run-through for Iki, which is a very interesting Rondell personnel management game set in feudal Japan that has a lot of really, really clever mechanisms. You know, just the, the way the um, overall board works, where it is a rondelle where everybody's having to move uh, you know, a certain number of spaces, what was it, counterclockwise, I think, every turn around the board. The board itself represents this famous marketplace in, you know, in feudal Japan and what ultimately I think became Tokyo. Has a really gorgeous look, and um, all the shops that are around this rondelle are very interesting. You you want to hit all the shops, but you you, know, you have to be very very tactical about where you land. And if you land in a shop that is manned by the personnel of your opponents, not only do you get the benefit of that shop, but they get a benefit as well. So you often have tough choices about that's where I really want to go but I don't want to help you by going to your store. And meanwhile, you were smart enough to take over control of that store because you suspected I was going to go there. It's really, really clever. Works well as a two-player. I think it'd be even cooler with more. We really, really enjoyed it. Now, I should say... The prototype I played, we thought was great, but we had a couple of questions about the end game. There was, it was kind of a weird, almost anticlimactic end game. And I never actually did circle back around to find out if that was addressed or if, you know, if it still works the way it did. Um, but I would be interested in finding out at the show, which is why I'd probably seek out Iki, which, by the way, is spelled I-K-I. Okay. Although you can see the na- how all what the names of all these things are in the notes associated with this podcast. All right, next up we have Karuba, which actually um, came out from Haba last year at Essen Spiel. And I have to admit, I went to Essen Spiel hoping to pick up a copy of this, but unfortunately, my voters decided, nah, 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 don't bother getting it uh, because most of the games I pick up at Essen are chosen by my voting block. And they said not to get it, so I didn't get it. And I've since heard nothing about how awesome it is that it's a real really phenomenal. It's another one of these games that kind of takes the basic structure of bingo, where every round, everybody um, you know, responds to the same token or chit or whatever it is that's been drawn, like uh, Dingo's Dreams or Rise of Augustus or Limes um, or the three I can think of. So this is another one <clears throat> where every round, um, well, everybody's trying to travel as fast as they can through a dense jungle that's represented by this little grid board. Everybody has the same basic jungle, but there are all these treasures you want to get spread throughout it. And the thing is, every time that the common, um, you know, a common tile might get drawn that says, oh, it's a road that's a straightaway, or it's a road with a 90-degree turn to the right, everybody decides for their own map how they're going to deploy that tile. And very quickly, you have everybody following very different strategies, um, trying to get through the jungle, um, you know, and, and trying to grab as much treasure as you can, and pushing your luck a little bit. Am I going to go for that treasure, or am I just going to try and go for the exit really quick? I've heard, again, I've heard nothing but great stuff. And in fact, I actually got to play one um, session of it at um, MeepleCon last year in Las Vegas when I was out in Vegas for Gamma. And I thought it was actually really cool, too. And I would really love to give this a try with Jen. I was left wondering a little bit if it was a bit too light for us. And I don't know if I'd play it over, say, Limes or Limez, I think it's supposed to be pronounced. 
or maybe even Dingo's Dreams. But I certainly did find it was it was very, very entertaining. So it's certainly something I'd want to spend some more time with. Karuba. Next on, we move on to our second classic Reiner Knizia design on this list that has been um, reprinted with given a whole new lick of paint. Raw, which is spelled R-A. And it is def- it's a game that we already own. We have an original print copy of Raw, which back in the day officially didn't support two players, but eventually I think fans of the game realized, no, this could totally support two players. Look, here's to make a couple little changes. And so Jen and I bought it, and we found it to be a phenomenal, very fun, fast, lovely, heavy, um, you know, tense and challenging in a fun way auction game that worked great with two. And now it is officially a two-player game. It's gotten this ridiculously overproduced, lavish new version from Fantasy Flight Games. And while I don't need it, because I'm not really sure if anything has been changed or added, man, it looks so pretty. And it's definitely something I'd want to see in real life to know if no, it's fine. I can stick with our original copy, or oh, must have, because it just looks so lovely. And I know for a fact the gameplay is absolutely phenomenal. The only reason it isn't higher is because, well, I've already got it. Should I be more excited about you know just getting a, a sexier version of an old classic? I don't know. But anyway, that's raw. And then next up, uh, we have Tesla versus Edison powering up. This is the first expansion I'm talking about. There will be several more expansions on the list. And... Um, This is another one that I have already done a run-through for, which you can go check out on my YouTube page to learn more. But this is a phenomenal expansion that really adds a ton of cool, interesting gameplay. So many new, cool ideas to the core game of uh, Tesla versus Edison. And in fact, uh, um, really for me and Jen, kind of fixed a lot of problems we had. And I think a lot of problems that a lot of players had with Tesla v. Edison. Don't get me wrong, Tesla v. Edison, Tesla versus Edison was a really, really solid economic um, infrastructure building uh, auction game. Had a lot of stuff going on. I mean, it had a lot. A lot of people drew a lot of comparisons with Power Grid because it is about you know the early days of the distribution of electricity in America with Tesla and Edison and several other famous inventors of the time going head-to-head to determine um, you know, who would come out on top. Um, but I know some people were disappointed by the original game because it was interesting. They had a... In, insanely brutal stock market where players could really destroy each other. I mean, a, a real mean-spirited game. And I don't mean that a bad way. Just, you know, just it, it was practically a game where you could really just absolutely, utterly obliterate your opponent um, by, you know, dro- you know, dropping the value of their shares if you invested heavily in them and stuff like that. So... The new game um, gives you alternate ways to play that downplays the importance and the impact of the stock market while giving you other ways to chase after victory points and making what really struck me and Jen as a much better, more well-rounded game. Now, don't get me wrong. You can just take all the new um, you know, uh, content, because there's tons of new cards, new event uh, system and stuff like that, and play the original way if you want, but we found the game to be much, much more pleasant with the expansion. And again, you can go check out my run-through and hear final thoughts to hear what we thought about and stuff like that. And after Tesla vs. Essen powering up, we've got Burano, yet another game I've done a run-through for. And this is a very, very cool, at the time I said very Steffenfeld-esque 
Euro with a million things going on, um, you know, lots of plates to keep spinning in the air, lots of very, very cool gameplay mechanisms, and an awesome look because it is about players kind of collaborating competitively to build up the Italian town of Burano, which is a wonderful, lovely, colorful little kind of like a suburb of Venice. You know, Jen and I, we've actually been there in real life. Oh, absolutely wonderful. We absolutely loved it. Uh, fell in love with the place. But uh, the game itself is really solid, too. And we really liked our plays of it. When I had the prototype, I did a, uh, I did a run-through for over... Must be close... Maybe close to a year ago now, I guess. But much like Iki, we were still left with... I mean, it was an early version of the game, and we were a little bit nervous about some of the design stuff. So that's why this appears lower, because it was a really solid game. I'm, just, I'm not 100% certain if the things that bothered us about the game have actually been rectified in this new full production distribution print. And so I'd probably head over there to check it out, um, because if so, it's probably... Uh, you know, well, no, it's definitely an, a phenomenal game, much like Iki was a phenomenal Euro. I'm just not really quite sure how it worked out in the end, but I'd be interested to find out for Burano. Moving along, we've got Guilds of London. Oh my gosh, is this the uh, third? Yep, the third game in a row that you can go and check my run through for. And um, this is an amazing game. You know, I when I did my run through for it, and I, I stand by this, I would hazard a guess this might go down as one of the best Euro games of 2016. You know, we're only halfway through the year. There's still a lot of phenomenal stuff coming. But in all honesty, the, the fundamental design of this game is so superlative, is so silky smooth, is just so amazingly rock-solid good. I just can't imagine any game doing better. Um, I, I, I'll be surprised. I'll eat my hat. I, you know, uh, I will not, in fact, eat my hat, but, but you get the idea. Absolutely amazing. Why isn't it higher on this list? Only because it's also a very, very mean game. There are lots of ways to really work over your opponent, steal everything they've worked for right out from underneath them um, with a smile on your face as you pull the dagger out of their back. And the thing is, I have to say about this game, it's so good. The gameplay is so amazingly phenomenal as players try to build up these guilds of London in um, you know kind of Victorian era or industrial era. I mean, again, I'm not going to go into the gameplay much. You can watch my run through of it. But it's a multi-use card system game with a big focus on area control. Uh, but it just works brilliantly. I mean, it's the result of I think a decade of design from Tony Boydell, who is a phenomenal designer. Snowdonia is great. Paperclip Railways is great. Guilds of London is amazing. I'm still just on the fence if it's a bit too mean-spirited for me and Jen. Um, I just don't know what to say about it, but man, I respect it so much, Guilds of London. Now, finally, a game I haven't done a run-through for. Um, Great Dinosaur Rush. Although, to be honest, I could have done a run-through for this because the publisher did contact me when it was on Kickstarter and said, we'd really love you to do a run-through for it. It's from designer Scott Alms. I've loved a lot of his game designs. And in, in fact, I mean, I love the game design of this too. And I really did want to play the prototype of it because the game itself is about competing archaeologists traveling around the world trying to find dinosaur bones that are represented by you know these wooden sticks. Um, and so there's this kind of light... You know, tiny, you, you consider it like a, I don't know, maybe a tiny epic Thebes or something like that. Um, you know, quick, fun, fast playing, little Euro style resource management collection game as you travel around and find these bones. But the other half of the game is actually taking these sticks and um, using them 
to actually design dinosaurs. Or, you know, I mean, you know how you've seen, <clears throat> hey, look, we've recreated what this dinosaur must have looked like by making an outline of how all the bones stuck together. So a big part of this game is actually getting these sticks, but then using your creativity to make dinosaurs. Or, you know, or dinosaur skeletons, I should say. It looks adorable. So I was really, really interested in it, but I ultimately said, no, I, I just can't cover it. And they said, why? And I said, because the game features a huge element of take that, screw you, I'm going to steal your stuff right out from underneath you or thwart your plans. I mean, it was really kind of woven heavily into the game. Um, you know, um, what was it called? I think Dirty Tactics or something like that. That You could play Dirty Trick Cards or something. Like you could, you know, it could be a whole bunch of Bellocks running around and not very many Indiana Joneses, you know? And I told him, look, I mean, as much as I love everything I read about this, it's just, I, I can't be interested in it. And they said, that's cool. And then they went on and they had a successful Kickstarter anyway. But afterwards, they recently contacted me again and said, well, hey, guess what? Scott took your feedback on board, realized it's not just me and Jen. There'd be a lot of people out there who'd be really interested in this game, but would be turned off by all the take that, screw you, backstabbing that was in the design. And so he did another pass at it to come up with an included variant that um, keeps the depth and richness of the gameplay while getting rid of all the screw you, take that in this. And I was like, why didn't you do that? Whatever it was, eight months ago. But they've done it now. So, I'm very, very excited about checking it out. Great Dinosaur Rush. And now, moving on, we have a lovely Old West, American West tile-laying game called Saloon Tycoon, which uh, was another hit on um, Kickstarter, I think back in February or March. And after a minute, I was always surprised the uh, publisher never contacted me because I totally would have done a run-through for it. I really, really like the idea of this. This is uh, you and I. Players, all players, are competing to build the best saloon in town or right across the street from each other. And um, we lay tiles to add more and more specialty rooms. You know, the... Uh, you know the, the, the uh, a corral for horses, and you know a gambling room, and you know, and yes, a, bor a bordello room, and all that. And you know, each of these different rooms, as we keep you know laying tile, um, gives us more special powers that will um, attract, you know, give us different abilities in the game, but also attract clientele, so that our saloon can become more and more popular. Um, but the coolest thing about it is, not only do you build your lay tiles. Out and, and spread out and take up more board real estate as your saloon gets bigger. You don't only spread outwards, but you lay tile upwards as well. That you can build second and third and fourth stories. And all the pictures I've seen of it makes it look really, really cool. And I was really, really um, dying to try out this notion of a tile layer that doesn't only lay them you know um, horizontally, but also lays them vertically. Like you know, that's it's a phenomenal thing in um, what like Tuluva or. Uh, oh, what is that future tile-laying game? Oh, Gink uh, Ginkopolis. So we loved it there. Well, I suspect this would be really cool, too. It looks like a really strongly thematic game. And it's finally for sale. Saloon Tycoon. I'd definitely be able to hand over to check it out to see if it's as fun as it looks. But now, let's move on to Valley of the Kings Last Rite. Now, this is the second standalone slash expansion for Valley of the Kings, which is a very neat deck builder. Jan and I, we've, we've played the base game. We thought it was really, really cool. It's another one of these deck builders that um, you know runs an interesting... Uh, has an interesting structure of, okay, I want to grab cards. I want to make my deck stronger and stronger and stronger. 
I got a lot of cool stuff now on my deck. But the game equally pushes you towards, right, I need to banish cards from my deck because that's how I score points. I have to, you know, get rid of them. Uh, like, you know, there are other games that do this. You know, it's kind of like there's a deck construction but an equal focus on deck destruction. And every game I've played that does this, it's been very, very cool. Like, uh, Eaten by Zombies is a really neat game. Uh, what's the other one? I'm looking around for it. Oh, uh, Cuisine a la Card. I think there's a couple more. Oh, um, 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 oh, the market game with the cute little animals. I can't think of the name of it. What is the name of the little market game? Uh... Oh, Dale of Merchants. Yep, I had to get up and look. Dale of Merchants. All of these deck builders that have an equal amount of, oh, you build your deck, but you also tear your deck apart to score points or what have you. They're neat. They're awesome. And this is another one. Valley of the Kings works great, too. And, I, and so it's kind of a no-brainer. It's a fun game. I want more content. I want more new cards to be able to build and tear apart my deck. The only reason this doesn't rate higher is because I really worry that, um, well, you know, uh, Valley of the Kings comes in a very, very tiny box. The first expansion for it, which we also have, all the cards for the base game and the first expansion fit in the game's original box. I worry that the Valley of the Kings Last Rites, the new one, if I get that too, I will not be able to fit the entire game in one box anymore. Uh, I'm hoping publisher AEG is smart enough to realize that people care about this and would like to only have one box on their shelves instead of two or three for a given game, and that Last Rites comes in a slightly bigger box so that it's big enough to be able to support all of Valley of the Kings. If they do, it's a no-brainer. I'll pick it up. If they don't, well, I'll have to look long and hard to make sure that these new cards are warrant me having to put another box on my shelf, even if it's a tiny box. So... Uh, I, that, you know, that's uh, it's kind of an odd reason, but you know, I don't have much shelf space. It's very, very tight. These are concerns. Anyway, so that's Valley of the King, last rites. Next, we move on to yet another game I've done a run through for Dreamwell from Action Phase Games, and this is a lovely abstract, um, clever puzzle racing game. Um, who is the artist? It's the art is from a very, very famous pop artist. And it has a really awesome look. I can't remember the name of the artist right now. Oh, it's driving me nuts. Again, you can go check out my run-through to see what the components look like and talk about the artist and stuff like that. But it was just a really solid, fun game. Jan and I enjoyed it quite a bit. The uh, board that we're traveling around uh, is constantly in motion as uh, the tiles are twisting and turning and moving as players are trying to, uh, as efficiently as possible, travel from one side to the other to collect all, you know, to basically collect a lot of cards to give you special powers that make you uh, more able to collect more cards in this race. It's a neat, neat game. Really solid, well-designed. We very much enjoyed Dreamwell. Now, uh, another game I haven't played. <clears throat> and I have to admit, when I first saw this, I kind of dismissed it out of hand. And, oh, this surely can't be for us. The name of the game, Arcane Academy. Uh, I believe it's a co-design from Eric Lang. And was it Kevin Wilson? I should really look that up. Um, let me look that up. Arcane Academy. Arcane Academy. Boy, am I professional? No. Let's see, it was Eric, I do remember it was Eric Lang, and I nailed it, Kevin Wilson. Now, these are both well-respected, very prolific, very successful designers. Um, and it's awesome that the two of them are collaborating to make a design. The only problem is, 
you know, their designs tend to not be the type of game Jen and I like. Um, you know, they tend to have a lot of take that in them. You know, Kevin Wilson is the master of Ameritrash-style gameplay. And while, I mean, they're all very well designed, very sharp, at least the ones I played, they've never really struck a chord with me and Jen. So, oh, now they're working together. Well, clearly this isn't going to work out. Even though I'll admit, I'm sure Jen would love the subject matter. It's another Harry Potter-esque, hey, we're all students at a magical academy trying to learn how to do spells to score points and whatnot. And that's all cool. You know, that's a great thing. We always like it. But we just, I just figured, oh, this is probably going to be where we're casting spells on each other and dueling, and eh, it just won't work for us. But um, Tom Vassell of the Dice Tower just did a video review of it the other day. And man, the core puzzle of this game, how you actually collect and build up card combo strings is phenomenally brilliant. I instantly fell in love with the core gameplay mechanisms of this game. Kind of reminded of the combo chain-tastic stuff you saw in Council of Four, which I have done a run-through for. Although, again, you can just go check out Tom's video. And so suddenly I'm like, oh, I must have this. And here's the thing. The one thing Tom didn't mention at all in his video is... Are there any spells that are take that, hit you, steal from you type stuff? That's, a, that, that, that's an instant out. means, okay, well, not going to be interested. We'll pass. Have plenty of games that don't require me having to attack Jen, which is something I don't want to do. Why would I take one more? But if the game doesn't feature those, or it's one of those games where, you know what, you could remove those and it wouldn't hurt the game at all, this becomes a must-have. That is the only... And I've looked all over the place. I've tried to find a list of cards to find out if there are any mean take-that ones, but nobody's talking about it. Everybody who's played the game is like, ah! So... Unfortunately, it cannot rate higher on the list because it's a big unknown for me. But, like I said, the core gameplay looks super-duper smart. And that, folks, is Arcane Academy. And now, uh, if you hold on for a minute, I think I'm going to take a break because I am parched. I'm so thirsty. I need to go get a drink of water. So, uh, hang out for a little bit. We'll be right back. Okay, everybody, let's keep going. I am refreshed and rejuvenated. We'll see how long I can go before another break. Continuing on with Bill and Ted's excellent board game, which I got to say, it looks delightful. Uh, I, I, although I should say, I mean, I, I like Bill and Ted. I, you know, I like both movies. I like the second one more than the first, but it's not like I was ever in love with them or anything like that. They're just, oh, they're kind of nice little fun trifles. So I'm not putting this on the list for any great love of the IP, but... Um, I do really like the notion of programmable movement. You know, that, that gameplay concept that was... I don't know if it was originated in RoboRally, but certainly RoboRally put it on the map. And uh, I would love to have... I, do we have a programmable movement game? I don't think we do. I've always liked the idea of it, but for one reason or another, whichever game we've ever picked up that features it, just, you know, there was always something about it that didn't work, that, you know, kept us you know, kept it alive. But this one, from what I've seen of it, and big shout-out to Sam Healy, again, of the Dice Tower. Why does Dice Tower keep getting all these games? Why aren't they sending it to me, publishers? I want to... Well, well, whatever. I understand. Dice Tower has a much bigger viewership than me, but, man, I would love to have done a, a video of this. Or Arcane Academy. Well, anyway, anyway, anyway. So, they got the scoop. Good for them. Um, and, you know, Sam did a really good job showing how the game works, and it looks really, really solid. Of course... He didn't mention at all how well it works for two, because who actually plays only two-player games? Uh, a few of us. But anyway, uh, from what I saw, it looks like it would work pretty well. 
Um, and you know the, the crux of it is every turn players are playing cards that define um, you know how their phone booth is going to move around and try to collect all the historical personages. You know, kind of borrowing from the first you know um, uh, excellent adventure movie. Um, but the interesting thing is there's a couple of bad guys on this board that are moving around as well. And whenever I tell my phone booth rotate 90 degrees right and then move forward two spaces so I can get over there and pick up Abraham Lincoln. The one of the bad guys on the board is also going to rotate 90 degrees and move two spaces forward. And um, it might be that that might cause him to run right into me, depending on where he is and where I am. Or it might cause him to run right into Jen. And the interesting thing is, I do my programming, you do your programming at the same time. We reveal, and we can never be sure until we reveal who has the lower initiative number, so who gets to go first. So I might make the perfect plan that not only takes into account the movement I need to do, but also the movement that the bad guy is going to do. But suddenly, if I'm not the first player, the other player might completely mess that up, get what I was running for, put the bad guy in a different position, whatever it might be. So I think, I mean, that looks really, really solid. My only worry is, again, Sam reviewed it as a four-player game. <laughs> um, and I would worry that as a two-player game, that the board might be a little bit too wide open, because he didn't say anything about the board shrinking down or anything like that. And so I wonder if a lot of the, the fun and the chaos will be kind of missing if there aren't three other people who might go before I do if I end up playing cards that have a really slow initiative. And so my well-planned um, plans all fall apart. With only one other player, I don't know if it'll make that much of a difference. I'm just not not sure. But still, I like the idea. It looks like it's a really well-designed game. Bill and Ted's excellent board game. Next up, we move to Agility, which is another game I've done a run-through for when it was on Kickstarter from, uh, was it Two Lantern Games? Is it Brett Povis? Is that the designer? Anyway, it was from the previously the designer of Morels, which is an awesome. I mean, I think that's one of the more well-regarded couple-friendly, two-player, you know, kind of Cosmos line board games out there. Morels is an awesome little game. I just barely missed making my top 10 two-player games of all time. I think it was like number 11 or number 12. And so anyway, he's finally released his second game, which is called Agility, which is about players training um, dogs to uh, compete in agility courses at dog shows, like Crufts or, oh, um, you know, the... Uh, I can't think of the name of the one in America, but you know what I'm talking about. You know where the, where the dogs have to like run through the tubes and go over the hurdles and all that kind of stuff. So you're spending an equal amount of time training the dog, but also competing in the uh, competition to score the most points. And there's a whole bunch of dog breeds. The art's really, really nice and charming, and you really get attached to these little little guys and girls as they, you know, they get better and better and they get smarter and smarter and, they, and they're trying to race. It's a really nicely designed game. Jen, I very much enjoyed it. And it's making its debut at Gen Con. So if you're at all interested, you could check out Agility. Then we've got another game I filmed in the name of Odin, which is a Viking conquest game, which at the time when I did the run-through, and I haven't actually played the final version. I only played the prototype I had when I did when it was on Kickstarter. But the thing I remember really liking the most about it is, hey, here's a Viking game where players aren't constantly trying to backstab each other and steal from each other and destroy each other. Hooray! It, um, it's uh, basically it's kind of a deck builder, but not really. No, 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 no. 
That's right. Oh, I said it, it kind of had the feel of a deck builder without being a deck builder at all. Basically, it's a game where you have a hand of cards. It's a hand management card game, basically, where each card has two different um, actions on it. And you play a card, or you play a handful of cards on your turn, and you play them for one of those two actions. So, depending on what your hand is strong in, you might be able to do a particular action that you don't want to do right now. You're weak in the action you want to do, so um, you're constantly trying to get the right hand of cards for the right types of actions so you can um, you know, push forward as best you can when you're building ships and sailing out to plunder and all of that. It was a really sharp, very fast, very smooth playing game. We very much enjoyed it. And once again, it's uh, hitting the streets at Gen Con in the name of Odin from NSKN Games. Next up, we have my second, I think this is the second expansion I have talked about. I believe so. Mysterium hidden signs. And now, this is a tricky one, because to actually play this, I believe this is an expansion for the reprint Mysterium, not the original uh, Ukrainian-designed Mysterium, or the Polish reprint, but the French reprint reprint that um, you know changed up a lot of the rules and changed a lot of the art and whatnot. And I believe this is an expansion for the reprint reprint. And I still have the original Polish version. So, um, but I've been thinking, do I want to get the new super... I mean, the, the production value on the new super version is so amazing. And now it's getting... Although, I, actually, if I recall correctly, I think... I think maybe that's not fair. I need to look into this a little more. Maybe that this is an expansion for both. That, um, you know, it's... it's I, well, I could just look, couldn't I? You'd think I'd actually bother to do my research ahead of time. Um, Mysterium Hidden Signs. Let's just go to the geek. Uh, hidden Signs. This is, must be exciting for you to listen to. The exciting sound of me typing. Okay, Mysterium Hidden Sign. Um, okay, yeah, no, it is from publisher Asmodee. So, this is for the Asmodee reprint reprint. So... I don't know if it's compatible with the one that was originally published by Portal and uh, who published it before that, the, uh, the original Ukrainian version. I'm not sure. But as far as I know, I don't think this actually adds any new uh, mechanisms or anything like that. This is just more cards, which is something that, you know, a game like this, like Dixit before, it definitely needs. You constantly want to be getting more cards, more cards uh, to keep the game fresh and alive. So I want it. Do I want it enough? to buy a whole nother copy of Mysterium. I don't know. If I had the newer version of Mysterium, though, rest assured, this would be near the top. Because why wouldn't I get it? Of course you want more. Uh, but anyway, because of that weird kind of limbo state I'm in, it's kind of smack dab in the middle of the list, which is roughly where we are. But anyway, folks, that was Mysterium Hidden Signs. And now for another game I've covered in the past, The King's Abbey, which is a dice worker placement game where players are building the or trying to build the best abbey for the king they can to score lots of points. And you know, this game was really really interesting in that it was balancing a whole bunch of stuff. It I mean, I think it uh, borrows a lot of ideas from a lot of games I really love. Uh, borrows ideas from Twa and from Macau and from a lot of you know dice builders like Alien Frontiers and whatnot. And it pulls them all together into a really rock solid package. Where Jen and I we really enjoyed it, which is saying something because you know anytime when you're doing anything in the name of religion, um, you know Jen who is very very hardcore anti-religious lady, um, you know very aggressively atheist, or maybe agnostic, but anyway, I mean, very aggressively anti-organized religion. 
she enjoyed it. She found herself very much enjoying the act of building these um, wonderful abbeys. Um, so that is a testament to how rock solid the gameplay is. And so I'm really looking forward to seeing the final version. Certainly the prototype we had, the art was a little rough and ready, so I hope it kind of got smoothed over a little bit and had a really nice you know, level of polish that it definitely deserves because it was a really smartly designed game. But anyway, like I said, you can go check out my run through to find out more about the King's Abbey. And next up, another expansion. Although, to be fair, I have actually never played the base game. But for quite a while, Sunrise City has been on my list of games to try. I've been really interested in, in seeking it out. And now, uh, kind of out of nowhere, I don't think anybody particularly expected this, it's getting an expansion, Sunrise City Nights. It's uh, nighttime in Sunrise City. And this is a, you know, another in the long line of modern city building tile laying simulation games. There's so many of them out there. I mean, sooner or later, I'm probably going to have to... So many of them, I have to do a top 10 on this topic. Although I can't until I play this game. But the, the, there were a few key claims to fame that Sunrise City had. Uh, the most notable is that while you're laying tiles, not only... Like I mentioned earlier with uh, Saloon Tycoon, not only are you laying them out horizontally, but you can also stack them on top of each other, kind of domino style. And that looked really solid. The components are apparently out of this world phenomenal, really thick, heavy tiles, kind of almost overproduced. But the thing that really interests me, really intrigues me, is a while ago when I did my run-through for Carcassonne the Castle and I raved about how smart the victory point track scoring system is in that game, where there are specific marks that if you, you know, right now, you might want to be able to do a thing that scores you 10 victory points, but that means you'd move forward 10 spaces on the victory point track. But if you only score three points to move forward three spaces, then boom, you hit a specific spot that will give you a cool bonus that will help you for the rest of the game. That is amazing in Carcassonne the Castle and makes it leaps and bounds above any other Carcassonne, uh, you know, and uh, an absolutely amazing game. And I've always thought that it was so brilliant. I've always wondered, why has no other game emulated this? It's so brilliant and so smart. And it would work in so many games. And somebody, at some point, told me, after I complained about that the 20th time, that, have you tried Sunrise City? Because it does it. And ever since then, I'm like, ah, I must try Sunrise City. So, I still must try Sunrise City. And now, there's an expansion for it, so i got to try that too. So, I don't know if the game's any good or not. I've never actually tried it, uh, but I've always wanted to. And now it's got an expansion. I want to try it even more. Sunrise City Nights. Okay, moving on. We move to Stronghold Games' Terraforming Mars, which is one of several Mars um, colonization-themed games that are all coming out, well, within like a... Within a very short period of time, we've got three big games coming out this year. And interestingly, Gen Con belongs to um, Terraforming Mars because the other ones, what are they called? Uh... Oh, um, what a uh, Martians: A Story of Civilization. It just finished its Kickstarter campaign, so it's probably not going to be available for a while. And the other one, oh, what is it? That one's from Ignacy Trevichek. It's a sequel to his Robinson Crusoe co-op game. What is it? That one's called uh, uh, First Martians. Adventure on the Red Planet. So you've got these three big box Martian colonization games all coming out within a few months of each other. And if you want to wait till next year, you've also got Surviving Mars, which is another interesting big box game. So, Mars is hot right now. Obviously, um, I'm, you know, probably all these designers right around the same time took inspiration from the first Martian when it was really a really big thing inside. Hey, that'd make a great game. Let's get working on it. And so, unfortunately, uh, they've all are coming out, and there's a big competition between the three.
So the one that's showing up at Gen Con to buy, Terraforming Mars, is, in all honesty, the three that are coming out this year, I suspect, well, I don't know. It has the potential to be the one that's best for me in Gen. It's the one that really strongly focuses on card play. The game comes with a bajillion cards, each one which represents different technological advances we will make over the span of centuries. This game has an epic sweep. It doesn't you know, track um, years or decades like the other games. It tracks centuries as we not only colonize Mars, but completely terraform it, turning it into a lush, livable world. So it dreams super big. And, uh, and you, do, you do it all through card hand management. You get a bunch of cards, and you get them in your hand. You try to play them and fulfill the... Uh, the the requirements they have, the resources you have to, you know, tinker with Mars itself and take steps that will, you know, change the overall planetary temperature, raising or falling it, you know, getting water on Mars and all these kind of things to be able to achieve these technological breakthroughs that will make Mars a another Earth, a new Earth for all intents and purposes. So, like I said, this one is interesting in that it has a very different focus. The other ones are all much more, hey, what's it going to be like our first, you know, colonization attempt. They're a bit more, um, you know, immediate. So I love that this one has, I'm not going to say, I, I'm not going to say it's a science fiction sweep because I'm, I'm sure it's still very, very grounded in speculative fiction, but it has this big overarching sweep. And I think, I suspect it has a ton of variety because there's just so many cards, so many different technologies, you know, and that's going to compare and contrast the, uh, I'll mention the other ones while we're here. Uh, what's it? First Martians, that's the one that's basically a reskin of Robinson Crusoe, the uh, adventure cooperative game that came out several years ago that was a phenomenal design, but it was a design that Jen and I didn't like for different reasons. So it'll be interesting to see him revisiting that and how he will tweak and revamp it. But I'm mostly interested in that because it is app-driven. I don't know if the app is required, but I don't care because any game that has app integration, I'm all over that because it makes the game cooler and more exciting and more interesting. Uh, so it's like a much more thematically driven storytelling game. And uh, the other one that just finished uh, Kickstarter, Martian Destroy Civilization, that one's kind of the most straightforward Euro-style worker placement thing where, uh, you know, it, it, it's... Um, you know, it's, it's more meat and potatoes. It's, it's more about just, you know, doing the work to colonize Mars, make it, uh, you know, a, a successful colony through worker placement. And the interesting thing about it is it has three different modes. You could play it cooperatively, competitively, or semi-cooperatively. Last year, by the way, I should, or no, earlier this year, I guess, there was also Mission to Mars 2049, which was kind of a more lightweight family gateway style game with a lot of screwage, unfortunately. So I kind of skipped that one. Next year, Surviving Mars, the first mission, that one, I think, based on the pedigree of the designer, is going to be the most scientifically grounded. The one that's really going to be focused on getting the science right. Whereas these other ones probably kind of smooth over that a little bit and just kind of streamline it to get more to the gameplay. I think Surviving Mars, again, based on the previous games from that designer, will really focus on the nitty-gritty details. But I don't know. Anyway, though, Terraforming Mars. It's the first one out of the gate. It's going to be at Gen Con this year. You can check it out. Um, right, then, moving on. Codename Pictures, which is kind of a no-brainer. Although, in all honesty, I mean, I know everybody's really excited about it. 
I like code names. I like words. I don't know that pictures are going to make it any better. It'll make it different. I think actually the coolest thing, the thing I'm most interested about it is that you are the rules support combining code names and code names pictures so that when you build the grid, it's half words and half pictures. I think that's the coolest thing that really blows my mind. But in all honesty, I mean this just isn't higher because I already have code names. Um and you know this is just an expansion, although it's a standalone game that just gives me more cards that are. But I mean, nothing really changes about the core game. But still, I bet you it'll be super cheap. So why not pick it up? I mean, because really, it's really really cool that notion of being able to combine both. Now, that would probably be the thing I'd like to try the most. But anyway, let's move on to Simurg, which I have done a run through for again when it was on Kickstarter. This is a very very cool. This is Dragon Riders of Pern. The worker placement game, for lack of a better term, because it it um it, it takes us into the world, uh, a fantasy world where humanity has tamed dragons and uses them to travel around the world. And um the 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 cool gameplay element of this game is it's a worker placement game where the worker placement itself is a very modular board. Because when you're not collecting resources to train your dragons and um, build up your, your fleet of dragon riders and equip, you know, all that stuff, you want to actually take your dragon riders and dragons out on adventures to explore this world. And when you choose to do that, you, um, there are these tiles that you draft for that when you take one, you put it on the board, suddenly creating a bunch of new worker placement spots that you can send, you can go to with your dragons. And you have to go through all these worker spots one after another after another to successfully explore these areas. But once I have taken the time and effort to explore to find this place, other players can jump on and race me to be the first to explore it. We thought it was a very, very clever game. Worked really, really nicely. An interesting twist on worker placement. And it was gorgeous, too. Really, really wonderful presentation. And that is Simurg. S-I-M-U-R-G-H. Also from NSKN Games. Now, let us move on to a game I did a run-through for just a couple days ago. Oceanos, which is from designer Antoine Bauza, and he has returned to that which made him famous, card drafting. Uh, rather than making another expansion for Seven Wonders, he decided to take a break from that and instead has made a new card drafting game about players piloting cool little kind of like Captain Nemo-esque submarines going under the sea to go on fish sighting expeditions. Uh, it's driven by... Um, card drafting. It does some interesting tweaks to the card drafting formula, and it equally focuses on tableau building and submarine building. It does a lot of neat stuff, and while it's incredibly light and very gateway-ish, I was really surprised. I, mean, I started out this whole thing talking about how Jen and I have had a harder and harder time justifying keeping gateway games around when I have so little shelf space, and we've been having to get rid of gateway games because... We don't have enough gateway gamer opportunities to play, but Oceanos, which I think would make a great gateway game, was still meaty enough that Jen and I enjoyed it for ourselves. So I'm glad I've got it. And, um, oh, an interesting thing, by the way, I've got the a French first printing, which had some very poorly cut submarine pieces that don't snap together very well. Uh, apparently, 
For the second printing, which I assume is what you'll be able to pick up at Gen Con, it has been reported that those errors were fixed. So it's just the French first edition that has the mess up. But apparently we're going to be able to contact people who have the original French first edition will be able to contact the publisher, Yellow, and get replacements. I need to get on the ball and do that because we really like the game. But it is a shame that my submarines don't actually fit together so sadly. But anyway, you can check the run-through I just put up a few days ago to learn out more about Oceanos. Next up, we've got Fantasy Hordes and Heroes. And Fantasy is spelled kind of weird. It's kind of spelled Fanta... Or the last part is Yahtzee. F-A-N-T-A-H-Z-E. Like Yahtzee, but Fantazzee. Or, you know, anyway. Um, It is a Yahtzee-style dice roller. You know, roll, pick the ones you like. Roll again, pick the ones you like. Lock it in. Use those dice to the best of your ability. There's a lot of games out here like this. Heck, in fact, I just did a run-through of one the other day, um, Magelings, which was a very nice game <clears throat> as well. And the interesting thing is that there's all these games out here that do this. I've, I've, I've seen several. And you know, they're all about a combination of uh, cards you can get that give you, um, you know, your own special places. You, wanna, you get these cards, and then you activate them by putting dice on them, and you create interesting, cool combo chains. Again, that's what Mageling does. There's other games that do it as well. And so uh, fantasy is another one. But the ones I played of this genre before, they always seem to unfortunately go down the route of being about, well, it's a duel or it's a race or whatever, and um, you're really trying to screw over your opponents instead of just trying to be the best you can be. Um, that was the problem with Mageling. I mean, it was very nicely well-designed, good combos, fun gameplay, fast, um, but just too much. Oh, I'm going to steal all your mana this turn. Ha, ha, ha. How do you like them apples? You know, that kind of stuff. Fantasy, Hordes and Heroes, the topic, the theme is we are, we're competing, but we're competing to be the best defender of a town from hordes of monsters that are coming. And what I hope that means, I just cross my fingers and hope that, I mean, I literally, I just crossed um, all four of my fingers on each, and let's see, can I do a double finger cross? There we go. I have uh, done a double finger cross. Uh, or triple finger crossed, six fingers crossed here. And um, my hope is that this one will not go down the oh-so-easy, well, you know what, let's just put in some interaction to give the game some zest. If they don't, if this, I mean, this is a game I'll be all over, because this is a game I want, and I don't want to have to beat my wife up to have this game. So fingers crossed. Uh, And again, it's another one where, again, I cannot find any information about the specific cards that it comes with. But if they're smart and they make a game for the Care Bears amongst us, we will reward them. Um, At least me and Jen will. So that's why I'm very interested in fantasy, hordes, and heroes. Moving on. Another expansion, Shakespeare Backstage. And last year I did a run-through for Shakespeare. Phenomenal, really clever auction game. Did some really, really good stuff. Gorgeous presentation, gorgeous art, just rock solid all around. And hey, now it's getting its first expansion, I, on, which adds a whole new feature of being of working backstage in addition to using your uh, your troupe of actors and uh, craftsmen to get ready for the big show. Now you can work backstage as well. I don't know what that means. I don't care. The base game was so good. I'm going to get this expansion. Just, you know... No ifs, ands, or buts about it. Which I guess, by the way, means that we're kind of getting to the point where we're shifting from the, oh, I'm kind of interested, I'd like to know more, to the, yeah, I'm going to get this. Make no mistake. You know, when I get there, if, if I were going there, uh, unless I got there and found out something really horrible I didn't know, chances are I was going to buy it. And Shakespeare backstage is definitely, definitely 
fits that criteria. Mm. And now let's move on to another expansion that I have done a video for, Epic Resort Villains Vacation. Epic Resort, I did a run through for a while ago. Um, a really, really clever, offbeat, very unique deck builder where players are running um, you know, tropical vacation resorts where fantasy heroes come to rest and relax, but unfortunately they are followed by monsters who try to ransack the resort. And so, as the person running the resort, I have to, it's my choice, uh, entreat the heroes who are vacationing to help save my place in which case, well, I won't get very many victory points because they won't have a very good restful vacation. Or keep the monsters away from my heroes so they don't know that the monsters are eating all the guests so that the heroes will be happy so I can score more victory points. Really clever game. Awesome art. Very cute and funny from Jackie Davis, I believe. And... Um, the only real problem with the base game was there just wasn't enough. It was one of those deck builders that needed more content. More content is here now. Villains Vacation added a bunch of new stuff. You can, um, you can find out about it in the video, but it's a total no-brainer. Uh, you know, it kind of finishes what Epic Resort started and I think makes it a full, robust game. Although, don't get me wrong, I would like even more cards because it's, it's a fun little deck builder. Anyway, that's Epic Resort Villains Vacations. Then, this is an odd one. I wasn't even sure if I wanted to put this on the list, but what the heck. Um, Millennium Blades, promo pack number two. And I mentioned this because Millennium Blades has been available for a while, but I guess, I guess the Kickstarter campaign had a whole bunch of Kickstarter-exclusive stuff that no one's ever going to be able to get if you, if you didn't back it on Kickstarter. And apparently, promo pack two was one of them. But apparently... If you're one of the first people to get over to that booth, they will have a few of these available. And if I were there, you better believe I'd get over there. Actually, I'm not entirely sure if I would, because I don't actually have Millennium Blades. Because, in all honesty, it was just too expensive for me. I couldn't afford it. Uh -huh. Plus, you know, I got to play the prototype, and we had a fun time. I'd love to get a final copy of the game, but um, people don't realize this. Most of the time, when I do a Kickstarter run-through of a game... As often as not, the publisher never sends me a copy of that game. Um, you know, I, I, we, I, we generally play it a few times, I do my video, and then that's it. You know, I don't get paid, and often I don't get the game. Uh, this is one that I never got a copy of. I'd love to have one, but it's fine. Um, I, you know, there is no obligation. I make that clear whenever I do a Kickstarter prototype preview. They have no obligation of you know, getting me a retail copy, and that's totally fine here. Um, but if I did have one, all I'm saying is... You better believe I would beat feet over there and try to get this promo pack number two. Plus, I guess there's going to be some other really limited edition, hard-to-get stuff that if you don't get there first, you'll never see it again. So, I guess I'm really mentioning this one more as kind of like a public service announcement for people who did get Millennium Blades at retail. You better get over there and grab this while you can, because I, I bet you they'll be gone really, really quick. So, anyway, um, that was that. Moving on to... Uh, oh, this is the same thing. Legends of Andor... Call of the Scrawls. Now, this is just a little one-card promo that's been available for Legend of Andor in German for a few years now. And in fact, I have the German one. And it's a, it's a nice little, you know, adds just like a makes a, the it makes the the you, you can add it to any Legends of Andor adventure you want, and it just makes things a little bit more challenging. That changes the way Scrawls and they, they become a little bit more aggressive because they've been called the Call of the Scrawls. Uh, what is that? oh I. I'm trying to remember. I think it's if you kill them, they get... Or something like that. But anyway. 
<coughs> it's just a little one-card promo. Anybody who loves Legends of Andor as much as we do should have it. That's why we got the German one. And the thing is, apparently, there's going to be a very, very limited number of English versions of this card. And it's not 100% clear how people get this. Apparently, it's going to be handed out at the door. It's not even for people who are actually Andor fans. And so, if you're an Andor fan, like we are... All I can say is go to Eric Martin's Geek List, try to find out exactly what you need to do to pick this up, because you'll be kicking yourself if you don't get one. And it'll be also kind of a pisser, because apparently a lot of people who hate Andor will be getting these things. I don't know. But anyway, just again, another public service announcement. Um, Legends of Andor, Call of the Scrolls promo. Figure out what you got to do to get it. I mean, I'd, I'd love an English one, but say lovey. I'm happy. My German one, it's fine. We just have a post note with it. But anyway, Legend of Andor, Call of the Scrolls. Back to actual games now. Next up on the list is Clank, which is a fantasy deck builder of players as um, thieves sneaking around in a in a in a dragon's cave, trying to collect treasure and avoid being fried alive by the dragon. Obviously, very Bilbo versus Smog type situation. Um, but here's what's interesting about this game. Is what makes me very, very excited about it. Um, actually, I, well, there's two things about it. That, uh, everybody seems to be really kind of... Anybody who talks about this said, oh, wow, this sounds so awesome. Because it's got this clank gimmick where you're a thief and you're trying to be quiet. The um, junk cards that end up in your deck, I guess, are ones that make noise. So when you end up drawing those cards, you end up making noise, and that puts you in more danger of the dragon getting you. I'll grant you, that's a very, very cool thematic twist on... Deck builders. Sounds really neat. That's not what I'm excited about. What I'm excited about in this game, although, to be fair, uh, that caught my interest when I first heard about it. But since then, there's been pictures of it released, and you can, I think the rules are available for it now. What really gets me excited about this game is this is one of the rare deck builders that integrates um, avatar traversal around the world. And I find that so compelling. The first place I saw it was Helionox, which is a, uh, a, a space game where, well, basically, the cards you have in your deck, you're building it up, you, and a big part of your deck is all about getting money to be able to buy better cards. But while you're doing this, you can also move a little character that represents you around on the board. Uh, and the two games I've seen this in so far, Helionox and... <clears throat> what you call it? Uh, 100 Swords. I've done run-throughs for both. You can check them both out. Both really fun deck builders and made fun more than anything else because the raw deck building stuff works great, but what really elevates it is you're spending as much time moving around in a world. It, it fixes what is, for some people, a fundamental flaw of deck builders in that they, oh, deck builders are themeless and you know it, it's just uh, st- you know, paste it on. I believe people feel that about deck builders. Because the fundamental problem about deck builders is not that there isn't theme. There's definitely theme, but that there's no representation of you in the world. You don't have anything to... um, any kind of focal point to be able to project yourself into this world. You are kind of an invisible entity manipulating resources, which is represented by your deck that you build up, all these resources you have available to you. So when you have a deck builder, but that deck builder draw the deck building drives your ability to move around and do stuff in a world. That's so awesome. And so far, I know of like I said, two games, and it's probably other ones: Hundred Swords and Heliox. They were both made great. And 
this game really takes it to 11 because the Dragon's Cave you're searching around in is this big map with treasure um, you know, strewn all about it. So you're trying, to, you're trying to figure out as you're building your deck, are you going to be filling it with um, money cards that let you get better cards? Are you going to be filling it with boot cards that make you better at moving around? And how much are you going to be clogging your deck up with these clank cards that make you make noise that will, dry, that will draw the dragon to you? It looks phenomenal. I am super duper excited for this game. Um, you know, and also it's from Renegade Game Studios, which, from the stuff I've seen from them so far, they seem to be on a streak. They are making very good choices about the designs they decide to publish. Um, so, all um, you know, we're now getting into the realm of okay. I'm very very stoked, and Clank, I'm very very stoked for that. But now. Let's, it's actually, I should say, clank exclamation point. Let's move on to the next one. Another one I've done a run through for quite a while ago. Um, I did this back um, before the game had any hope of even being printed. It was just a little print and play that anybody could uh, make for themselves. And I, I happened to have a fan who got me a copy of the print and play that they made for it. And I did a run through for it. And I'm not saying I got this game published. Don't get me wrong. But I don't know. I like to think I helped a little bit. But anyway, beyond Baker Street is a wonderful card game that takes its inspiration from Hanabi. It is basically, you could almost think of it as a Hanabi 2, uh, you know, kind of a Hanabi sequel, where it takes that core gameplay mechanism of, oh, I've got a bunch of cards in my hand, but I don't know what they are because they're back to me and everybody else can see my cards, and they have to give me very, very restricted, limited clues so I can figure out what's in my hand, and we're all working cooperatively, to, um, trying to figure out, um, help each other, with hints, let them know what's in their hand so that they can play the cards that they don't even see. That's what Hanabi does. That's the crux of Beyond Baker Street as well. But what this game does is it adds a strong thematic storytelling to the game. Players take on um, roles as actual detectives um, in Scotland Yard trying to solve crimes that, um, uh, before Sherlock Holmes does. Um, you know, there's a timer, basically, because Sherlock Holmes will solve this crime in X number of turns, so we don't have much time to do it. And this is so much cooler than the... Comp I mean, Hanabi had this theme about fireworks, but it was totally abstract. I mean, it, it, was, it, was, as, it was thematic as Uno, really. But beyond Baker Street adds a really strong, well-integrated theme that makes the game much more approachable, much more fun, and um, also changes up the way you actually win. And it gives you... Um, well, anyway, I talked more about this in the run-through, um, about how one game... What was it? Oh, one game is kind of like uh, 21, and the other one's kind of like poker, if I recall correctly. Was that it? Or no, one was like 21, where you... Well, anyway, though, you can watch my original run-through. Long story short, it's great. I hope, I hope to get a final copy of this because although I still have my little print and play version, um, but I'm, I'm really, really happy that a full commercial release because the game deserves to be released. For anybody who would poo-poo it by saying, "Oh, it's just a rip-off," it, you know, stuff like that shouldn't exist. You know what, folks? Every creative endeavor in the world is a rip-off of something that has come before. Every artist takes inspiration from others. It's all about standing on the shoulders of giants. I've talked about this at great length in past podcasts, so I won't do it again. Long story short, Beyond Baker Street, great game. Hanabi killer, basically. Okay, next up. 
Mansions of Madness Second Edition. And now this is, um, you know, Fantasy Flight. Every year they always surprise people. Oh my gosh, I had no idea this game was coming. And so this is one of several they've announced so far. And maybe there'll be even more secret ones coming. But none of them have really caught my interest, except for this one. Now. In the early days of Jen's and my board game career, we actually had Mansions of Madness. And I got to say, you know, I wasn't really that much of a fan of all the Ameritrash, Million Little Persnickety Rules, Arkham Horror, Eldritch Horror-style stuff. It's a, it's a Cthulhu-themed game of, of investigators checking out a haunted mansion and, you know, confronting the forces of the Elder Gods and cultists and trying to stop nefarious plots. All that kind of stuff you've seen in Game you know, House on Haunted Hill. You've seen it over and over and over again. <clears throat> but what made this game really interesting was that when you had to come up and your character, oh, I can't get through the door, it's locked, I have to pick the lock, um, you didn't just say, oh, roll a die, and if I roll at least a seven, my character will pick the lock. Hooray. Which, you know... For people who say that these games are so incredibly thematic, what is thematic about rolling dice? That doesn't give me any kind of feeling of that I'm really doing these things. The brilliant thing about Mansions of Madness was it shipped with all these cool little mini-games um, for like rewiring... I remember there was a lockpick one. There was rewiring um, a circuit breaker one, and there were a few other ones that were really well integrated. They were kind of like little miniature video games, kind of like sliding puzzle type stuff. But whenever um, the heroes got to a part where they had to do this, you didn't just roll a die to see if you picked the lock or restored power. You actually tried to do it yourself. And you had time constraints, and it was so brilliantly designed because if your character had a really good, um, was really smart, they would get bonuses that would make the minigame easier. And so if you had a dumb character try to do one of these things, you actually, uh, it made the minigame harder. It was so brilliant, so well done, and I so loved it. Now, we didn't keep Mansions of Badness because Jen doesn't like games with machine guns, quite frankly. But we both thought this was really cool. But anyway, so, um, you know, fast forward now, whatever this is, five years later, it's getting a second edition reprint, and here's the brilliant part. It is now an app-enabled game. Where, in the original game, it was... Um, one versus all. One player was like the dungeon master who controlled all the bad guys and told them what to do and set up the puzzles for the heroes and you know try to create a challenge for them. And um, all the other players worked together to beat the bad guy. And you know there was a lot of reports how a lot of the scenarios were unbalanced and you know and the whole thing was kind of wonky. So they're revisiting now, and there is no dungeon master player. The app plays the role of the dungeon master who controls all the bad guys. And now we play those puzzles, and you know because the only problem with this was it was kind of fiddly to play these puzzles and set them up and all that. Now you do these little mini games on your phone, on your tablet. That is so awesome. I am so excited about this. This is going to be one of the coolest app into board game integrations yet. The notion that, hey, based on what happens in the game, I've now got to play a little mini video game to complete the thing that I want to do on the board. Oh my gosh, this is so exciting. So cool. I gotta check it out. And I can only hope Jen puts aside her disdain for the subject matter, and then I can put aside my disdain for the inherent Ameritrashy style gameplay, because I love the idea of Mansions of Madness 2nd Edition. Next up, we have Via Nebula from Martin Wallace. <clears throat> and this is already widely available. It seems like every um, reviewer in the universe, except for me, got a review copy of it. Um, oh well, I'm not complaining. That's the problem with living in paradise. Nobody wants to ship you games. That's okay. But I'm still excited for this because this is basically 
um, kind of a light gateway-ish version of Railways of the World or Steam or Steam Age of Steam. You know, it is one of these kind of route building train games where you're, you're, you're trying to create a route and then move goods from one area to another and all that. But instead of a big, heavy, complex, long, 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 long game, it's a fast, gorgeous, family-friendly game where they've excised the trains. They kept the gameplay and just rethemed it. So it's all about, um, I guess it's building roads between villages or something like that. I'm not really quite sure what. But it's the same basic ideas as those great classic... You know, I mean, we love Railways of the World, but I love the idea of a fast-playing, lighter version that would be something that we could get to the table more often. Um, and so I'm super stoked for it, via Nebula. My only worry, <clears throat> it does it once again suffer, the Martin Wallace doesn't really care about two-player gameplay curse that so many of his games suffer from. My fingers are crossed. I've got high hopes. I've got a good feeling about this one, via Nebula. Okay, next up we have Kraftwagen V6, which is odd because I'd have to go back and look. I'm almost positive Kraftwagen was on my list of must-get games last year for Gen Con as well because it came out at Essen. Or no, no, was it? No, it wasn't an Essen release, but it came out before Gen Con last year. I thought it got, but I guess this is Kraftwagen V6, which, as far as I know basically is basically the same game and just adds like a kind of a little mini promos worth of additional content, but now has a new publisher. Stronghold Games. So, it's still a great game from Matthias Kramer, who always makes these absolutely phenomenal designs. You can check out my run-through I did for quite a while ago. It still stands. I've still got my original version of it. So, but if I didn't, you better believe I'd be um, beaten feet to ensure I picked up my copy of Croftwagen. <clears throat> okay, next up, another game I've done a run-through for, Pursuit of Happiness. And as I've always said whenever I talk about this game, full disclosure, this was co-designed by a personal friend of mine, um, you know, a, a Maltese, a young Maltese guy, who also was the co-designer on um, And Then We Held Hands. So Pursuit of Happiness is basically a Euro-style worker placement game that has the theme of the game of life. You are telling a life story over the course of this game, from your childhood to your teenage years, to your working years, to your golden years. And um, as you go through through all these ages, you um, the worker placement you're doing in this game is your place. Your um, your workers are time. They they look like these little hourglasses, and it's how much time you spent during your teenage years or your working years or whatever, uh, engaging in you know trying to better yourself or trying to just have fun or whether to improve your your standing in society or whatever you want to do. Uh, and the game comes with a ton of cards, so every time you play, you have a lot of different options for what you actually pursue. It's just a really rock solid game. The victory points in this game are happiness. You win by being the by living the best, most well-rounded life possible. Tell me that isn't an awesome theme. Tell me that isn't better than yet another game where you're running around killing a bunch of stuff. Which, to be fair, a lot of the games I've talked about today are about running around killing stuff. It's so nice to have a game that is devoted to building the best life possible. And that is Pursuit of Happiness. 
Um, and I guess this is a reprint with revamped art, and it kind of fixes some of the complaints that people had. Like the original version, uh, basically, it didn't really go very much into the thematic particulars of what your career was. It just said you had a career in science. Now they've uh, made those much more thematic. I guess they've redone the art and stuff like that. I haven't seen a lot, but it's just a must-have. It's a great game. David did a phenomenal job um, working with... I'm sorry, I don't remember the Greek co-designer he worked with. I'm so sorry. Um, other guy... <laughs> But, like I said, uh, I'm friends with the guy, but it's a great game. I would say that regardless. It's right in our wheelhouse. You know, we love, 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 love... Um, there's, there, oh, gosh, I can't think of the name of it now. The dice game. Oh, what, oh, CV. This is the same... This is a worker placement version of CV, which is um, an amazing game, and so is Pursuit of Happiness. Next up, another expansion. I think I'm almost done with expansions. All right. Yes, yeah, so there's this and one more expansion. And this one is Dominion Empires. Who knew there would be another Dominion? But, you know, I know some people are complaining, enough! I don't care. I want more. Um, because the last Dominion finally broke me, and I could not keep the whole thing contained in two expansion boxes anymore. So now I got plenty of room for more expansions, so keep them coming. Uh, in fact, I already have my copy of this. I'm not sure why it's being touted as being released at Gen Con. I believe it's been available for a while now, I think. But anyway, it's great. I'm not going to go so far as to say it's the best expansion to date, but one of the new mechanisms, it, it introduces the notion of cards that you can collect by taking debt tokens instead of... On a given turn, oh, I didn't get much cash. I can't buy anything. Yes, you can buy one of those cards. It doesn't cost any cash. But instead, you take debt tokens. But then, for the next two or three turns, you're going to be paying off that debt, and you can't buy anything. Do you really want to grab that card right now? That is awesome. Such an incredible... And it has a bunch of other really cool new features in it as well. Awesome expansion. If you're at all a Dominion fan, you really got to pick it up. Dominion Empires. Okay. Moving on. We're almost there, folks. Let's talk now about London Dread, which is a Victorian-era uh, cooperative stop-the-evil-mastermind from realizing his nefarious plot as you run around in, in Victorian-era London. Interesting. Uh, there's another cooperative game with the exact same theme, Victoriana, which is going to be going on Kickstarter in... A month or two, and I'll be doing a run through for that. That's a really nice game, but um, but I think radically different than this one, London Dread, which is about um, program. Yeah, so London Dread is about um, programmed movement. I mentioned this earlier. Which game was I talking about before? Oh, Bill and Ted's uh, excellent. Board game. Uh, I love the idea of program movement where every turn you have to choose what is my character going to do and then set him free as they wander around the world and watch and hope your plans work out. Now, the thing about this is this is a cooperative game where we have to travel around London and um, you know encounter plots and defeat bad guys and various and sundry things. Uh, and I guess roll dice and stuff like that. That's not the interesting thing. Is The thing is we're working together and so... We plot what we're going to have our characters do, but we have to do it in real time. I love real-time board gaming. It's Whenever it works well, it's phenomenal. So the notion that at the beginning of every round, we both have to write, okay, I'm going to head over there, and let's see, I've got to program my guy so I'll be able to do it and deal with whatever comes up along the way. And then you know, time runs out, and we actually see how well it all worked out. Awesome. Now, this might sound familiar to some people, because there was a game that came out from Vlada Shavadal years ago called Space Alert. And that's true. And Space Alert was awesome. And I wish 
that I could play Space Alert, but unfortunately, that was a game that if you try to play it two-player, forces you to control multiple characters, which is something I hate, but Jen hated it especially in Space Alert, so we just didn't keep it. The brilliant thing about London Dread, I looked at the rules to confirm this, in a two-player game, they do not require you to control multiple characters. They've got this neat little ally system that seems like it's a really simple thing that works very nicely. I'm, I'm very happy with it, so I'm very, very excited to try this out, because this is another game where hopefully it will scratch that program movement, plus it's co-op, plus it's real-time. These are all things I really, really like quite a bit, so I'm super excited for London Dread. <clears throat> oh my goodness. Let's see. You know what? Oh, my throat's so dry. There's a little bit of water here. Is it going to be enough? Okay, I'm good. Let's go. Sorry if I just bumped my uh, mic there trying to reach the water bottle. Okay, folks, we're almost done. Almost, we're almost to the top 10, in fact. Where are we at? 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, 10, 11, 12. Okay, and coming in at number 12, Islebound. From designer artist Ryan Lockett. Yes, once again, I've done a run-through for this when it was on Kickstarter. You can check that out. Long story short, this is a wonderful accomplishment of a game for a few reasons. Most notably, it is a pick-up-and-deliver game that Jen and I actually enjoy. We hate pick-up-and-deliver as a general rule. Very rarely do we find one we enjoy. We very much enjoyed this. This is also, on the surface, if I were to describe all the, you know, the gameplay structure and how it works, you'd think, well, that's an Ameritrash game, isn't it? Nope, it's a Euro game. This is, you know, it's a game of high piracy on the seven seas or, um, and, you know, traveling from port to port and um, fighting monsters and recruiting allies and all kinds of stuff. You, you would, you know, um, you, and you would expect it's not the kind of game we tend to enjoy. Very highly thematic, but this game is driven 100% by Euro mechanisms. It's really sharp, it's really elegant, it's really smooth, and it's gorgeous. And apparently, interestingly, if you go there to pick it up at the show, you can also pick up a little promo for it that allows you to convert the crew that you can recruit in Islebound and turn them into villagers that you can use in Above and Below. Which is awesome! I want that! I want that so much! Anyway, though, <clears throat> awesome game. Check out my run-through. Islebound. Okay, then we've got... I promise, folks, the last, I'm double-checking, yep, the last expansion of this run-through and the highest-ranked one, Rattle Battle, Grab the Loot, Angry Ocean. And, I don't know, someday the voters are going to have me do a run-through of Rattle Battle, Grab the Loot, because, man, I think that game got such a raw deal. It is so much fun, and yet it really kind of got ripped apart, and it's been kind of dismissed out of hand. I'm so happy that designer Ignacy Trevcek, the Portal Games, decided to heck with the haters. We're going to bring out this expansion anyway, because um, I'm super stoked for it. Um, and particularly because I, I, it has two modules, and one of the modules, I think, maybe solves the only real problem Jen and I have with the game, which is it's a little on the long side. But it's a great, great game. I'd say watch my run-through, but the voters steadfastly, month after month after month, vote it down and say um, and choose not to have me run through it. But someday, someday, I will run through it. And uh, in the meantime, I will very much enjoy Angry Ocean, because it's got to have, because it's a great, great game. Okay, and now I think that means we're at number 10. It's the top 10 countdown. You know what, folks? I think that is a good time to break. Let's um, get uh, some more water so I can make it through these last 10. Are you excited? I'd like to say I am, but mostly I'm so tired. But we'll be right back anyway. Hold on.
Okay, folks, you still with me? You've held on this long? I don't know why. I don't know what keeps me going other than yet another glass of sweet, sweet water. Mm. If only Jen were here, I'm sure she'd make me some nice warm lemon honey water like she does. And I could really use that now. If only I had the recipe. I think the recipe is just lemon juice, honey, and water, actually. But anyway, um, we're down to the top 10 games that these are all kind of must-haves. Actually, that's not entirely true. I, I misspoke earlier. Um, this is not a list of thinking about it to must-haves. There are several in these top 10 that are like, well, I'm really excited, but I don't know. I do need to check it out first. So this is just more about just overall level of enthusiasm and excitement based on what I know. Again, trying to pretend that I haven't played them because even in this top 10, there are a few that I have actually played. But I'm still coming at it from the point of view of treating all games equal, whether I play them or not, pretending, um, you know, judging them based on how excited I would be if I were just somebody who had seen a Rado runs through instead of filming a Rado runs through, if that makes sense. So anyway, stop blathering. Uh, my throat's going as it is. Number 10. Vast, the Crystal Caverns, which I don't know why, used to be called Trove some other, and with some other subtitle, but they've changed it to Vast. I guess maybe there was some other game conflict IP challenge to it, so they had to change it. I don't really know. But <clears throat> whether you call it Trove or whether you call it Vast, this is a very, very cool game. It's a dungeon delving game where uh, each player takes on a radically different role. One player can be the brave knight, who is come to the dungeon specifically to seek out and kill the dragon. One player can be the dragon, who has just woken up from a long slumber and is basically, I think, just trying to escape, just trying to get out alive, I think. I'm not 100% certain. I, you, I, don't quote me on that, but I believe that's the dragon. So right off the bat, you know, if, you, if you're playing as those two roles, the players have radically different goals. But it doesn't stop there. You could be the player who controls the horde of goblins. And if you're doing that, your sole goal is to kill the knight. And, um, or you could be the thief who is here and doesn't really care about the, the dragon or the goblin or the knight. He's just here to steal a bunch of stuff. Or, this is the craziest idea of all, you could be the cave who wants to kill everybody, who wants everybody out of it. The cave, the spirit of the cave, wants you all out. And so the cave is spending the entire game trying to force itself to collapse and kill everybody. And the thing is, whichever one of these characters you choose, you have a radically different style of game to pl uh, play. I mean, different types of resources, different gameplay mechanisms... So it's a wildly ambitious game, and what it reminds me of most is actually Claustrophobia, which is a phenomenal two-player-only game where one player is the heroes, one player is the bad guy monsters, and both sides, both sides use dice in really cool, clever ways to control their characters, but, um, but radically different. One person's basically playing a dice worker placement game, and the other player is, I don't know what you'd call it, the way you use dice to kind of, Well, it's not a character programming game, but anyway... But it's a game where each player has a radically different game they're playing, but they're all in the same space and butting heads against each other. Vast, formerly Trove, seems like it's that idea um, taken to 11. You know, just like pushed over the limit. And I love the idea of this. And while Jen and I generally do not seek out games where we are directly dueling or directly trying to kill each other, 
For this game, I'm willing to make an exception because it sounds so cool. And we love claustrophobia so much. I really, that's why it's in my number 10 spot. Vast, the Crystal Caverns. Man, I so want to play this game. Then moving on to number nine. Uh, design from one of my favorite up-and-coming designers, Clayne Clank, Kane Klenko. Then the game is Covert. And I think, I think, no, 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 I was going to say this is going to be the last time I complain bitterly. Publishers, why don't you send me these games? I want to, I wish I could have done a run-through for this instead of just having to talk about it. Um, but instead, once again, they send it to Dice Tower. But, you know, in all fairness, Z Garcia did a phenomenal video of it, and he just got me even more excited than I've ever been before for this game. It is a Dice Worker placement game, and there are... You know, and it's basically, I think it's Cold War era spies zipping around Europe, or maybe it's World War II era, maybe it's modern era, I don't remember. But anyway, every, it's a spy versus spy game. My spies are trying to out-intelligence your spies and stuff like that. And it's driven by, and we've got my spies moving around on the board trying to get stuff and whatnot, but it's driven by dice. Um, but there's two really cool things about this game. One is the dice placement. Uh, there are different actions, you know, move or code break or whatever. But if I roll my dice and you roll your dice, and then we're taking turns placing our dice, if both of us want to do a code-breaking action, let's say, and you're first, and you place a five, a, a, a die value number five in the code-breaker action, it's my turn now. I can still do the code-breaker, but only if I have a four or a six. And if I do have a four, and then you want to do another code-breaker action, well, at this point, you better have a six or a three. Um, this notion that um, you get kind of like these cascading streams of dice values, that what you play affects what I play, and I can see what you've got, and that just seems so simple, but so brilliant. I'm in love with that idea so much, and I really want to experience it. And then the other thing is, there's this whole code breaker mechanism. It's one of several things you're focusing on in the game, but it is this very, very cool little mini-game where basically... You've got this, uh, oh man, it's hard to describe. It's easier, that's why I want to do a run-through of this game. I don't have to talk about it, I want to show it. You know, Rotter Run-Through is all about show, don't tell, and all I can do is tell you. Well, I guess all I can do is tell you, go watch Z's video of it. Uh, they sent one to Dice Tower, and um, he did a good job, and it looks great to me. Actually, I was really surprised, because he thought, I got the impression from him, he just thought it was kind of okay. But I mean, his video, man, it just looks phenomenal. Well, obviously, I think it looks phenomenal because it's my number nine. Let's move on to number eight, Goonies, the adventure card game. And um, first of all, like Bill and Ted, I should point out, I have no abiding love or nostalgia for the Goonies. Yes, I must have been, whatever, 10 or 11 when it came out in the 80s, and I saw it in the theaters. And I thought, oh, yeah, that, but I mean, it seems like there's such a huge amount of love for this thing. But I always thought, eh, that was kind of an okay movie, but I, I, I never really cared about it. So I am not listing this in any way, shape, or form because of the franchise it's associated with. I could take it or leave it, quite frankly. And um, there are two, uh, the re or actually, I should say, the reason I am listing this is because I watched a video. A gameplay demonstration from the designers, um, Pinchback and oh, was it Ben Pinchback and Matt Ridd? Oh, I like these guys. I mean, the the, the, the design duo behind Fleet, which is uh, one of my favorite auction games of all time. Oh, I'm so sorry, Matt. I'm forgetting your name. But anyway, um, anyway, so these guys they did Fleet. It was phenomenal. 
Um, they've done a couple other games, but they also did Back to the Future recently. And I'll be honest, for some reason, I don't know why Back to the Future, the card game, is getting such a bad rap. Jen I, we really enjoyed it quite a bit. And we thought it did a really great job of capturing the spirit of Back to the Future while still being a very, very cool, interesting, challenging, puzzly game. And I think maybe a lot of people didn't like it because they don't want a challenging, puzzly game when they think Back to the Future. They just want something more light and breezy and thematic and less cerebral because it's a very cerebral game. But whatever. Um, you know, I, I, I don't... Do, you know, I, I, I don't begrudge anybody not liking that game, but Jen and I enjoyed it quite a bit. So anyway, Ben and Matt are now back doing Goonies. And so, buoyed or you know, given confidence by the fact that I have enjoyed their designs in the past, I look into this game, I see they've done a video, I watch it, and lo and behold, what do I see? While it may be called Goonies, the, uh, the adventure card game, it might as well be called Pandemic the Card Game. This game seems to so beautifully, brilliantly, elegantly capture the gameplay of Pandemic in 100% card form. Um, you know, it's interesting. Matt Leacock did Pandemic the Cure, which is basically Pandemic the Dice Game. That did not do as good a job transferring Pandemic into dice as this game seems to transfer Pandemic into cards. Now, don't get me wrong. There's no viruses, and you're not globe hopping. You're just, um, but you are tra um, traveling quickly back and forth between all the key locales from the movie, which I have to admit I don't even remember. And instead of viruses spreading all over the place, it's um, oh, the members of the gang that the kids were up against. Um, you know, they're creating trouble all over the place, and it's um, you know, it's spreading over time. And if if you don't push those trouble back, I you know, in the same way that in pandemic, if you don't keep the spread of viruses under control, you can instantly lose. And so while you're trying to put... And, and you push it back and move around by using multi-use cards. The cards can use... To, you can use them either to move around or to defeat the challenges. And all the characters have unique special powers that make them well-suited for one thing or another. But everybody has to pull together and work well. And I'm watching this and I'm thinking, oh my god, this looks like so much fun. All the fun of Pandemic in a really cool, tight, super portable card package. How awesome is that? So... I am super stoked for Goonies, the adventure card game. To be fair, um, if, whenever I get it, I will go and watch the Goonies first. And who knows, maybe that will trigger some kind of nostalgia trip uh, for me. But I honestly don't care. I'm just excited about this for the gameplay and the pedigree of the designers. It looks really, really cool. Goonies, well, obviously it does because it's my number nine. Now, moving on to my number eight. And this one is the biggest gamble on this entire list. Every other one of these top 10, I am 100% confident about. But my number seven, Harry Potter, um, Battle for Hogwarts, or Hogwarts Battle, I don't know. It's only here because of the IP. It is here because Jen loves Harry Potter so, 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 so much. So much. She would never forgive me if she found out that there was finally a Harry Potter-themed game that has the potential to be good. And I don't want to cast this... I mean, heck, Reiner Knizia designed a couple of Harry Potter Lego games, if I recall correctly. I don't want to cast aspersion on anybody, but none of the other Harry Potter games... I mean, all... I should know. All the other Harry Potter games out there seem to be pretty much designed to be sold in Toys R Us to um, you know the same family audience that wants to play Sorry and Monopoly and Game of Life. I mean, they're, they are not designed for gamers. This Harry Potter Battle for Hogwarts is a deck builder. Um, and uh, it is a cooperative 
deck builder. So those are two things I love immensely. Put on top of that Harry Potter, and it's a no-brainer. It's a must-get. I, I would probably still hopefully play it if I were at Gen Con before I bought it. Oh, uh, oh by the way, another huge red flag um, for the game. It's from USAopoly, and USAopoly, the publisher, hasn't even bothered to go onto BoardGameGeek and list who the designer is. It's designed by Anonymous. That's scary. Honestly, and also, that's insulting. Uh, to whoever you are, um, you know, unsung designer out there, you know, I'm sure you put your heart and soul into designing this game, and you did your best. It's kind of, ugh, publishers. Uh, USA Offly, what are you doing? Give get, get credit where credit is due. Are you ashamed of the designer? I don't know, it's weird. But anyway, uh, there's not much known about it. USAopoly has posted a couple of articles, and it gives the impression that it's a deck builder that borrows heavily, borrows liberally from the Ascension-style river deck builder format, which, of course, is what all the Cerebus games from Cryptozoic does as well. And I mean, heck, it's a very popular way. I mean, probably most deck builders copy that format of there's a river of cards, and you know, um, the ones that don't get taken eventually go away, and new ones come out. And I have to admit, that's not generally my favorite way to do a deck builder. I much prefer the Dominion approach. But the fact that this is Harry Potter, the fact that this is cooperative, that's huge. That's why it's my number seven. Okay, moving on to number six. This one I've done a run-through for. Uh, Project Elite. And it's getting an expansion, um, Adrenaline. So both of these are must-pickups. And I got to say, I mean, Jen and I, we played the prototype of it for the Kickstarter, as I, we so often do, and we really loved it. I mean, this one really did give Escape, Curse of the Temple, a run for its money in terms of fun factor for a real-time dice-chucking game. You know, like Escape, Curse of the Temple, and Escape Zombie City, and it is a, a game where you only have a certain amount of time, you're rolling dice as fast as you can to ideally get the results you want, and if you roll poorly, you just mitigate as best as you can while under intense, intense time pressure. And you can work cooperatively, you can, co you can uh, uh, coordinate your actions, but you're doing it under the gun. The brilliant thing about the design of this game, though, was you only do that for a few minutes, and then it's the monster's turn, and that happens turn-based. So, um, you know, so there's a so it gives you breathing time. This is something that other real-time games desperately need. Um, you know, it was actually really smart that they kind of worked that basic idea, or in a in a better way, into Escape Zombie City. It's one of the ways Escape Zombie City improved on Escape: Curse of the Temple. But anyway. Uh, a project. I mean, you can go back and watch our run through. We absolutely adored this game um, so much so that Jen was willing to play it in spite of the fact that she hates the theme because it is space marines wielding uh, machine guns fighting xenomorph aliens. I mean, we so wish it had been a high fantasy with wizards and crossbows and stuff like that. But the gameplay was so good, Jen was willing to play it anyway, even though she didn't like the theme. And you know, the thing is, it's so sad because. The gameplay has always been great, but this game has gone through a lot of really big, uh, a very, very troubled development history because it has a bajillion minis, and the first pass of the minis turned out to be really, really poor, and there was a lot of outcry and anger about it, and, and so it's taken a lot longer than it should have for the game to finally um, reach a, you know, a proper commercial release. But that commercial release is here. 
And I would definitely be wanting to pick this up. And I'm, I'm so excited there's an expansion. You know, I mean, that's, I guess that's one thing. You take so much longer to release the base game, that means when it eventually does come out, boom, there's an expansion ready as well. But my understanding is the minis, you know, they're not the greatest minis in the world, but that's kind of on purpose because this is a real-time game. You can't afford to have sharp, fragile minis. You need kind of, um, you know, ones that can take a beating because of all the high-speed, high-pressure moving stuff around. Um, and apparently the minis are, they're not the greatest in the world, but they're good, solid minis now. But honestly, I don't really care. The gameplay is phenomenal. It's a wonderful, wonderful, fun, fun, real-time cooperative game. Project Elite and its expansion, Adrenaline. Okay, number five is named Order of the Gilded Compass. And even though this game is getting its commercial release and has never been released before... I'm going to go so far as to say I've done a run-through for this because this is a re-implementation of one of our favorite dice worker placement games of all time, Aaliyah E. Octa Est, which I did a run-through for, gosh, a couple of years ago. And now, just like with, uh, what do you call it, um, Beyond Baker Street, I'm not saying I had anything to do with getting this game made. But the interesting thing is, after I did my run-through of Aaliyah Oct S, which was a wonderful... Uh, it was one of the first Dice Worker Placement. I don't remember if it... I think it might have even come out before Kingsburg, or whatever, roughly around the same time, but a really great game of Dice Worker Placement in ancient Rome, um, using your dice for all kinds of things. But really, really smart game. And so I eventually did a run-through of it, and everybody said, Oh my gosh, this is amazing! Why can't we get this game anymore? Uh, it looks like so much fun. And um, uh, Tom Lehman, one of the designers of it, uh, po po poked his head in on the discussion thread of my video and said, Well, you know, it's interesting to find there's all this renewed excitement for Aaliyah Yacht S, because we've been thinking for years about um, you know, uh, you know, revamping it and doing a second edition. Maybe, maybe the time is here. And now I'm not saying that's true, but I just thought it was really, really cool that maybe my video had some small part in getting this game published. Interesting thing about it is, while I guess it's still the same basic game, you know, dice worker placement um, with lots of really clever systems of um, when you roll, when you, when you use your dice uh, in some areas you place them, you're trying to go for straights, in some of them you're trying to go for pairs, all kinds of really cool stuff. It's been completely rethemed to be an Indiana Jones world-hopping adventure game, The Order of the Gilded Compass, which is awesome. Don't get me wrong. I mean, I love the original theme, and, but, I mean, the new theme sounds really, really cool, and I can't wait to see what changes they've made to the gameplay because I can only imagine all these years later that... Um, um, did I say Tom Lehman? Oh, I don't mean Tom Lehman. I meant Bernd Eisenstein. Oh, gosh darn it. And he's another one of my favorite um, you know, unsung designers. Where is new, uh, new, I'm just, oh, come on. I've actually met him at Essen and sat and talked to him for quite a while. Jeffrey Allers, dang it. I'm sorry, Jeffrey, I don't know why I thought of Tom. Although, you know, that's, that's high praise. Tom Lehman's kind of a big deal, too. But anyway, um, so uh, Jeffrey and Bern, or, you know, Jeffrey said, yeah, we're looking at it. And lo and behold, a couple years later, here it is. I'm very excited for it. I love Elioct S. I can only assume this will be even better. And it's my number five. Okay. Number four. Uh, I've done a run-through for this. I own it. I'm looking at it on my wall right now. I absolutely love it. Castles of Burgundy, the card game. Um, and since I've already done it, what the heck? I mean, well, again, you can see my run-through. If I hadn't played this game, though, 
I would still be just as excited because Castles of Burgundy is in my top five favorite games of all time. It is my favorite Feld game, period. It is a phenomenal, amazing game. And the notion of turning that into a card game, um, you know, with, with the tweaks that they've made, uh, you know, the, the fact that they've sped the game up, they've made it super portable, etc., etc., there's a lot that got me very, very excited about it. And as it turns out, it lives up to my excitement. It's a great, great game. Um, but now, everybody else will be able to get it as well because it's coming to Gen Con. My number four, Castles of Burgundy, the card game. Number three, I promise, this is the last game that I will say, yeah, you can go check out my run-through. Um, I think that's a good thing, because you can go check out my run-through. It's The Networks, which, again, I did when it was on Kickstarter. And, um, man, this is a really, really phenomenal game. It's a card-driven game where players are network TV executives trying to um, develop the best shows with the best stars and the best creative team and put them in the best time slot to get the biggest audience to score the most points. It is a phenomenally well-designed game. It is just so butter-silky smooth. Butter-silk? Whatever. Uh, it's just that smooth. It's smoother than butter and silk combined. It's that good. And Jen and I absolutely adored it. Even though we had an incredibly ugly prototype that had almost no art in it, we played that game several times. We enjoyed it so much. I cannot wait to get the final version. If you watch my run-through, you'll, you'll see why. Gil Hova, had, designer, has so knocked it out of the park with this one. It is a phenomenal game. The Networks. And then, on to number two. And... Um, would you mind if I play the world's smallest violin for myself one more time? AEG, why am I the only game reviewer in the world you did not get a copy of Mystic Veil to? I, everybody and their mother has done a video review of this now, except for me. Um, I guess that makes me a man of the people, though, because I just have to sit by the sidelines and wait until I can buy this game. Well, it's really weird. I mean, AEG did send me automobiles, but they didn't... Whatever. Whatever. I don't care. Um, I'm super stoked for this game. It is a deck builder where not only are you building your deck, but you're building the cards that go into your deck because it has this, in case you don't know what it is, but it's a, it was a super hot game. It's already gotten a lot of attention. And of course, everybody except for me has done a video of it now. But basically, um, the cards... When you, when you get a card and it has a certain effect, the card actually comes in a sleeve that has empty pockets in it. And over time, um, once you take this card and it has one effect, you can get other cards that have additional effect and put them in the additional pockets. So you kind of upgrade the cards that your deck is comprised of. It's absolutely amazing. It's such a phenomenal thing. Um, I'm so in love with this idea. I cannot wait to play it. I mean, heck, when I was at Gamma last, uh, or no, earlier this year in Vegas, um, I almost got them to give me their prototype so I could walk away because I was so excited at the time. But, oh, well, whatever. Um, it will, eventually, I will be able to get it here in Europe and I will buy my own copy and I'm sure we will love it. But, in the meantime, if I were in Gen Con, you better believe I'd be picking up a copy of that because I want it. I want it, my precious. It's my number two. But, it's not my number one. My number one has to be Pandemic. Reign of Cthulhu. Ba -da -da! Nope, sorry, not Seafall. Actually, the real uh, occurs to me now, at the very, very end of all of this, I really should have put a caveat in at the beginning of this. You know, okay, I'll put the caveat in later. Scratch that. Okay, you've already heard the caveat. I've gone backwards in time and done it already, but pandemic, my number one 
because it's freaking pandemic. And after Pandemic Legacy, I mean, that has pushed the pandemic system of game into my number one favorite game of all time. Um, sure, Pandemic was also the game that converted me into a modern board gamer, so I have a fair amount of love in my heart for it. But it doesn't change the fact that it's absolutely a phenomenal game, and we have never played a bad game of Pandemic or any iteration uh, it's come in. And this is the latest one, and it's maybe the coolest one. A complete retheme, giving it a very Cthulhu-y, Ameritrash-style Arkham Horror vibe, but keeping all the wonderful co-op Euro-y goodness, adding really neat story-driven um, event system, and a bunch of other little tweaks to the, the core pandemic formula. For all intents and purposes, this could have been packaged as an expansion to base Pandemic. It really could have. Um, you know, and it could have kept the original Pandemic theme. Um, you know, instead of cultists, you're still chasing viruses. Um, you know, instead of finding cures to diseases, you're trying to stop the Elder Gods. But I love the fact um, that, I don't know, and some people, I guess, consider this to be a cash grab. I just consider this to be a raucous, joyous exploration of Pandemic, being able to give it to us in new and exciting forms for those of us who really love it and like to see it go in new directions. I can't wait to um, you know, fight the Ancient Ones, but not by rolling infinite dice and reading just tons and tons of little tiny um, you know, four-point texts that try to tell a story that is disjointed that I don't particularly care about. I want the story that we tell, and that's why I'm super excited by Pandemic. Pandemic Reign of Cthulhu. It is my number one game that I would ensure I would not leave Gen Con without. And there we have it, folks. I believe that was 52 in total. And now we're going to take a little bit of a break because, oh my gosh, how many are there demoable? Let's take a quick count right now. Um, 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, 10, 11, for it, I kind of lost track there, but around 40 additional games. Folks, we're only about halfway through this podcast. Although, I certainly understand if this is your time to bail because you, a lot of people only care about games they can buy. But if you stick around coming up soon, I'll be talking about the games you can't buy, but that you can sure the heck play. And I'll also try to tell you why that's so exciting. So hang on, folks. We'll be right back. Okay, everybody. Time for round two. The games that are only playable in demo form for whatever reason. Right. Uh, I know a lot of people don't really seem to care about this. They only want to hear about what you can actually buy. And I have to admit, I don't really get that. Honestly, to me, I would have much more reason to want to go to Gen Con not to buy things, but to actually get to play games that otherwise I won't be able to try out for months Heck, maybe even years. It seems like such a lost opportunity to chase after buying a bunch of games that you know what you'll just be able to buy you know, in a few weeks anyway when it comes out in retail. I never really quite get that. Um, to me, the most exciting thing, ideally, is sitting down with the designer of the game, playing their game with them. I mean, that's just so cool. You get to get insight into the thinking behind the game. You actually get to potentially make a difference in the game by giving them feedback and making the game better. That's, um, you know, when, uh, the one time I got to go to Gen Con, my favorite memories were sitting down with, like, Phil Dubarry and playing through a prototype of uh, Spirits of the Rice Patty. And, um, you know, and stuff like that is just so much cooler. But 
for whatever reason, I, I'm not. It seems like most people aren't that interested. But if you're listening, obviously you are. So why am I blathering on instead of actually talking about these 40 or some games that I think would be well worth checking out? Again, I'm ranking this from least interested to most interested. So the deeper I go, the more uh, fervently. There's a good word. The more fervently I would try to seek them out. Although, again, like the other list, some of these games I have already played as I've done run-throughs for prototypes of them for Kickstarter and whatnot. But, again, I'm treating this list as if I hadn't played them, as, I, as if I was just one of you folks and I just happened to see videos about them and I had a general understanding these would be the ones I'd be most interested in. So, let's get going. Gulp. Starting with Mintworks, which is interesting because I guess this game came about because there was a contest on Board Game Geek to design a game that will fit in a tin of Altoids, basically. And um, this game, Mintworks, I think was, it didn't win, but it was the first runner-up in the, in the contest. And the designer was so pleased with it, he said... What the heck? I'm just going to go ahead and put this thing out here. Mintworks, as I understand it, is arguably the world's smallest worker placement game. Because in the tin of mints, and you know, the game will come in a tin, you get a bunch of mints, although I don't know if they'll actually be mints or just like little mint chits, and some cards. And whichever cards come into play give you different opportunities for worker placement. And this is a real bare-bones, basic my first worker placement introductory type game. It's very much a gateway, but I'm really interested in the idea of a game so tiny you could easily fit in your pocket, and yet it still provides you with worker placement goodness. That is Mintworks. Next up, we have Looney Quest, which is an odd one to list. I mean, it's actually been available in, in Europe for quite a while, and I think it's been available in America as an import for quite a while, and it'll only be there in demo form, but... Still, it looks like a really cool game. I have to admit, I haven't played it, but I've seen a lot of video people playing it. The notion being that everybody can see on the central board a, a literally a video game level, an old-school 2D side-scrolling video game level that shows you a bunch of platforms you have to move along, a bunch of enemies you have to avoid, a bunch of treasures you have to try and get. And what everybody does is they look at that central picture, but they draw on their own little erasable clipboard the path that they would follow through that. So you have to have real hand-eye coordination in a very interesting way. And what happens is, after everybody's drawn, they take their little clipboard, and it's actually it's a, it's a transparent mylar sheath. They pull it off the clipboard, they put it over the top, and they see, all right, if you actually ran this level, how many bad guys would you run into and how many treasures would you collect? Seems like a really simple game. I look forward to giving it a try someday. If I were a Gen Con, maybe I would. That's Looney Quest. It's L-O-O-N-Y, not E-Y, oddly. Okay, next up we have Conan, which was a monster success Kickstarter. Just a really just blew the doors off. I mean, you know, like millions of dollars this thing made. And it is a cooperative... Ameritrashy, I believe. You know, lots of dice chucking, lots of stat checking, um, adventure cooperative game where one player is Conan and the other players are all of his compatriots, I assume, all taken directly from the Robert E. Howard original novels, not from the Arnold Schwarzenegger movie, although I don't really know. I don't know much about... I have no, I have very little Conan lore at the ready. All I know is what's best in life. But 
Apparently, uh, I mean, the game was w incredibly well received. And I remember when I looked at it, it seemed like it had some very nice, clever, uh, you know, take on an Ameritrashy style cooperative adventure game. So if I were in Gen Con, I'd surely be interested in sitting down and playing it if I happen to stumble across it to see what all the hubbub is. After that, we've got Defre De <laughs> Defense Grid. The board game. Now, apparently, this is based on a video game series called Defense Grid. It's some kind of tower defense game. I don't know anything about that. But here's what I do know. It is a cooperative deck builder tower defense game. That's interesting to me. I would very much like to check something like that out. Um, let's see. I don't think there's actually... No, actually, yeah, there's no final art, but apparently one of the things that, that you know they're borrowing from the video game is the notion that when you play, there's these different AI characters that you get to choose from, and um, you level them up as the game goes on, and you, you give them AI abilities and improvements, and, and, you're, and you're building towers and defense and all that kind of stuff to protect, well, whatever it is you're trying to defect on, on this grid. Again, I don't know much about it, which is why it's relatively low on the board. I mostly just include it because, hey, I like deck builders. I like cooperative deck builders. Um, I'm, and I think I might like a cooperative deck building um, tower defense game. So why not check out Defense Grid, the board game? Then we've got Born to Serve, which... Uh, see, who are the designers of this? this is a, there's a husband and wife team... Uh, let me look them up. I do not remember their name to serve. They, I've done a run-through for an earlier game of theirs. Uh, it, it was something Atlantis? Looting Atlantis. Right. Um, from the Sours. Uh, uh, Diane and Nick Sour. These are lovely people. And, you know, they're just, you know, following the dream, making their own games. And I got to say, I am really attracted to the theme of this game, which is everybody is a superhero but you're also a waiter or waitress. And you're using your superpowers to be the best gosh darn server in this restaurant to get the most tips. If that isn't a crazy, far out, totally fresh, new um, theme, I can't think of what is. That just sounds absolutely delightful. I would love to check something like that out. Um, so, Born to Serve would definitely be something I would love to sit down and try at the show. After that, we've got One Deck Dungeon which is basically trying to be a NetHack-style game, which, for people who don't know, is an old style of um, video game dungeon crawl that are typified by, you know, like, very short, brutal, nasty, um, you know, uh, you know, lutathons where, I mean, you're doing good if you make it uh, past level 5. I mean, you, you just play it over and over and over again, create a new character, try and go deeper, try to go deeper. And this is basically trying to capture that NetHack-style experience in um, card form. I don't know how it does it, but I, 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 honestly, I just really like the title. One Deck Dungeon. One deck of cards, it's a whole dungeon in there. Do your best. Sounds really cool. I'd love to try it. After that, we have got Showtime, which... Oh, excuse me. Uh, I don't know if I'm going to be able to make it. Uh, which is a card game where players are carnival barkers. Uh, and there's like two stages of the overall structure of the game. First, you are trying to play cards to attract um, people to, to the carnival. And but then after they've shown up, you are trying to get them to come into the various attractions. You know, uh, you know the, the various carnival attractions you've got. But the thing is, even though I'm the one who attracted this particular punter here, you might be the one who actually gets them into your 
uh, you know, attraction, whatever that might be. So that sounds cool. I, I like the idea of that. But I think the main thing that got me to uh, put it on my list is from designer uh, Stephen Stephen Armani. This is his second design. His first design was Yardmasters, which I thought was a lovely little um, Uno Plus style game that we really enjoyed. So I'm interested to see what he comes up next. And that'll be Showtime with an exclamation point. And after that, we've got The Ninth World. Although, let's see, actually, I just wrote that down. That's not the full title of the game. What is it? It is The Ninth World, a skill building game for Numeria. And now, this is. Set in Numeria, which I guess is some very popular role-playing universe uh, that's set in the far-flung future where our modern-day society is considered a thing of ancient lore and you know people have kind of reverted back to some kind of fantasy future setting kind of thing. I guess it's one of those kind of things. I don't really know anything about Numeria, I have to admit. But it's interesting, I have actually played this game at... Um, was it the Gamma Trade Show? Yeah, the Gamma Trade Show earlier this year. And it's a, the game has two modes. There's a competitive and a cooperative version. I played it competitively with uh, Lance Meister, the Undead Viking, as a matter of fact, and um, also talks of Crits Happen, a couple of YouTube, other YouTube shows, in case you don't know, and, you know, uh, Scott, um, and... Well, it was interesting. I think we all liked it. it. It's at its heart, it's an auction game where every round you're, there's this kind of unique t- twist on auctions that everybody's going through to try to get all the best equipment to be able to survive in this far-flung future. Um, and it was okay, but I didn't really get the impression it would be particularly interesting as a two-player game. What I'm really interested in is playing it in its cooperative mode. That's very, very interesting to me because the core gameplay itself, well, like I said, it was run by an auction. So how does that work if you're playing uh, cooperatively? I don't know, but I'd really like to find out. So that is definitely something that I would definitely want to check out. So that is the ninth world. And then we have Starfall. Here's all I know about this. It's from designer Scott Alms, and I've really loved his Tiny Epic Games, plus several of the other games he's done. And the only description, and once again, game publishers, what is up with you? Why do you not realize that Board Game Geek is this incredible tool for you to get the audience excited about games? Here's what Pandasaurus Games, the publisher of Starfall, has decided is a good enough description of their game. Because they could go in and edit this. Anybody could go in and edit this. The people at Pandasaurus could go in, edit this, and, and write a description that gets one excited. The only reason, I, the reason I'm excited about this game is because it's Scott Alms, so I'm interested to find out more. Here's the description. Starfall, it's a Kinetia-like bitty game created by somebody other than Kinetia. I don't know. I guess that's clever, but show me some pictures. Give me a description. Get me excited by something other than the fact it's from designer Scott Alms. I will never understand these board game publishers who are just frittering away potential eyeballs on their games by not even bothering. Anybody can hit these edit buttons. Anybody can... Well, whatever. Um, That's Starfall. Next up, we have Museum, which is a cool-looking little game. Although, again, once again, publisher... It's Holy Grail Games um, and designer in a... They can't even be bothered to list who the designer of this game is. Now, maybe that doesn't matter. Maybe it's a first-time designer. I don't know. But still, come on. Spend the five seconds to come in here, hit the edit button, and type in the guy or girl's name. Why don't... pup? Anyway, that aside, here's why it's on my list. One, artist Vincent Dutrois, 
who, again, is maybe the best, fast becoming the most popular artist in the board game industry. There's actually quite a few pictures of the card art in this game, and it just looks phenomenal. You gotta go look it up. It's just, the name of the game is just Museum, so it's kind of hard to find. Because obviously, that's a kind of generic name. But if you find it and look at this art, gobsmacking. And then the other thing is, it, it, we're trying to run museums, and it is a card game, a multi-use card game, where, according to the description, and hey, at least they put in a good description, you, uh, if, you, if you want to install this particular work of art in your museum, you have to discard a certain number of other cards to do it. And so those cards go into your discard pile. But here's the thing. Once they go into your discard pile, they can be grabbed by other players. So, what is already often a very, very tough decision of, I've got all these cards, I want to play this one, which cards do I get rid of, becomes even tougher, because now you're potentially giving those cards to your opponent. That is awesome. That is kind of Shades of Lost Cities right there, and I love the idea of it. So, I'm very, very intrigued by the gameplay, and I can see the pictures, I'm looking at them right now. Stunning, absolutely jaw-dropping stuff. And... Um, Maybe the gameplay is great, too. Anyway, that is Museum. Next up, we have 1001 Odysseys, which is a uh, space-faring adventure game. And I have to admit, I mean, the, the description here doesn't really go into a lot of detail uh, about the particulars. I mean, for all I know, it's just, uh, you know, move around on the board, go to a particular planet, uh, find out what you're going to have to do, uh, and then roll some dice to see if you succeed. Which, in all honesty, would not get me particularly excited. Uh, it is cooperative, so that's good. But heck, so is, uh, you know, Arkham Horror, and that didn't really get me excited. Here's why I'm interested in this game. When you uh, go around from place to place and you get to where you're going, you don't draw from a deck of cards an adventure card that you read some text and then you try and do a skill check. You have an app. And the app monitors what all the adventures you're going to do on. Now, like I said, it could very well be that when you get there, oh, you're just literally replacing a deck card with an app. I'm still interested in trying that, seeing what that does, because in case you haven't heard... I personally am super excited about app integration into board games. And this is a new way to do it, uh, to take care of all the overhead of what you see in an Arkham Horror where there's 50 bajillion cards to keep track of. And more importantly, I particularly love the idea of an app. If, I mean, I don't even know, maybe the game is more complex than just, hey, the, the, they happen to have written 600 different encounters and every time you go, you'll get a different one. Even if that's all it is, which is, again, you know, kind of what you know, your Eldritch Horror-type Ameritrashy-style games do. And don't get me wrong, I got nothing against that. That's totally cool. I don't particularly like it, but I totally get that other people do. I'm glad they dig it and they have fun with it. I'm interested in this anyway because one huge improvement an app could make is it can have a memory. It can remember what cards we've seen and what cards we haven't seen without having to without having to have the player do a lot of extra bookkeeping of keeping, you know, and all that stuff. So I'm interested to see the app integration and what it does uh, to adventure game, board game format in 1001 Odysseys, which is why I'd certainly like to give it a try. Then we've got Haspelknecht, which uh, has already been out in Europe for quite a while, and I've already done a run-through of the full commercial release. So really, you can go check out my run-through of that to see what it's all about. But um, it's a very, very clever... Um, what would you call it? Uh, you know what? I'm not going to spend... I mean, again, you can go check out my run-through. Um, if I had never played it, though, I would want to play it because the gameplay is really solid. Uh, then we move on to Dream Home. And this is from Rebel. 
And I mean, I talked about this earlier. I mean, how nice is it to have a game theme where you build something instead of destroy something or kill something? That's always nice. And I'm I'm particularly intrigued and uh, find attractive the idea of building your dream home. This isn't the first game that's had that uh, particular theme. But the thing is, again, you'd have to go to the Gord Game Deep and look at the art. This art is so gorgeous. I look at these pictures of living rooms and kitchens and, and playrooms and whatnot, and I want to live in these houses. So, uh, call me shallow. I am ent entirely intrigued by this game because of the quality of the art. It's actually from a first-time designer. So I have no idea if the game itself will be good or not, but man, it sure is pretty. That's Dream Home. Then we move on to The King's Abbey Lethal Steel. And I already talked about The King's Abbey in the main run-through that's finally coming out. And hey, there's going to be an expansion for it. What's in the expansion? I don't know. But I'd be interested in trying it out. And once again, you know, it'd be a great opportunity to see what's coming in the future for King's Abbey. If you're thinking about buying King's Abbey, how great is this that you could play what the potential future prototype is? Well, again, if you're listening to this, you're on board with playing demos. Why am I actually trying to sell you on the idea of playing demos? Um, anyway, that's King's Abbey Lethal Steel. Then we've got Motion Pictures. Well, that's, what is it? Motion Pictures Movies Out of Cardboard, which is another deck builder. And I'm um, sorry, I'm not one of those who grumble because I love deck builders. I can't get enough of them as long as they do something interesting. And this is very, very interesting to me. Making movies done driven by deck building. Having to get the right filmmakers, you know, the right scripts, the right actors, whatever it might be. I don't know the particulars. It's actually a fairly long description here. I didn't even bother reading it because you had me at deck builder about making movies. That is awesome and that's the reason I, I would love to try out and learn a little bit more um, firsthand about motion pictures. Then we go on to Coldwater Crown, which is a worker placement competitive fishing game. And I have to admit, I have zero interest in this theme. In all honesty, this theme is almost a deterrent to me in the same way that beer brewing game theme is. I see that and I'm just like, okay, I actively don't want to play that game. Um, and fishing is kind of the same thing. But on the flip side, it is from designer Brian um, Schur. I'm not sure how to pronounce his name. Sorry, Brian. Who previously designed Paradox, which I did a run-through for when it was on Kickstarter. And that was a really, really clever game that Jen and I liked quite a bit. So this is going to be a sophomore effort. Let's see if it lives up to his first game. That is Cold Water Crown. Then we move on to Legendary Inventors, which um, there's actually, I forget the name of the designer. It's a French designer, I believe. And he has previously done two games in the Builders. It was like Builders Medieval Era and then Builders Antiquities. And this seems like it's a really cool card worker placement game that's been very well received. I haven't played them, but this is basically taking the same idea, but applying it to real-world inventors. So you're trying to mix and match all these inventors to make all these great inventions. So I love this kind of alternate world, what if Marie Curie and Albert Einstein collaborated to, um, you know, whatever. I love that idea. So thematically, I would love to try out Legendary Inventors. Then we move on to Medici, the card game. What the heck? Just in time for Medici to get reprinted, which I talked about in the main, uh, Kanitia works on a card game version. And the interesting thing is, the um, description points out, it completely removes the auction, which is mind-blowing to me. 
I would love to see what does this mean? That's just so so completely far out of there, out of left field. It definitely seems like it'd be worth hunting down Medici the card game. Then we move on to Lunar Architects, which is another one I've done a run-through for. This is a reimagining of Glenmore, which, uh, heck, I just mentioned is one of my favorite tile-laying games of all time. It, made, it was my number two tile layer when I just did my top ten the other day. And it's been out of print for quite a while. It's been very, very hard to find. And because of that, there was a brave young soul who decided, well, hey, I'm going to go on ahead and make a game inspired by um, Glenmore called Noon Architects. I'll um, introduce tweaks and twists and whatnot and, uh, you know, and try to improve it. And um, he's made Lunar Architects. I played it. I thought it was very, very good. I'm not saying it's better. It, actually, there are several things it does much, much better than Glenmore that I like more than Glenmore. But um, it's weird. It switched from Square Texas to Hexes. And I actually kind of liked... Glenmore is a harsher, more unforgiving game because, um, because it's a square tile. You only ever get to activate a given tile you know, at, at most... Um, Three times, one, two, three, four times. Whereas if you have hexes, you get to activate it more. It makes it a little bit easier to build. But it seems like it's kind of a nice introduction, or certainly a nice alternative to Glenmore, because it introduced stuff like variable objectives and all kinds of really cool things. Now, as it turns out, Glenmore apparently is going, you know, Matthias Kramer himself is going back to the drawing board. There will eventually be a Glenmore second edition as well. But in the meantime, if you want some Glenmore action, you might want to check out Loon Architects. And it'll be cool to see what it does differently with the Glenmore formula versus whatever Glenmore 2 does with the Glenmore formula. Then we move on to Crisis. Another one I've done a run-through for, which is a very cool worker placement game that basically is a science fiction reimagining of the austerity measures that Greece is going through right now. It's from a Greece designer, and it takes all the... You know, the Socioeconomic things that are happening in Greece right now because of you know the the, com the country's insolvency and the EU's intervention, but turns it into a board game where players are uh, industrialists trying to take advantage of the chaos and uh, you know make the country great again. Is a really really cool theme, and you know I loved it. Uh, you know I loved it in the same way that classic Star Trek would repurpose issues of the day like Vietnam or interracial relations, but put them in a sci-fi theme, so it made it more palatable. So. That's what Crisis is doing too. And I found it to be a really solid game. Although, I think it works better with more than two. But, like I said, it was just a really solid game. And if I hadn't played it, I would definitely want to seek it out. Because I would be so intrigued by the notion of, of you know, these real world problems being kind of investigated, evaluated in board game format. That's really awesome. Then we move on to The Fugitive, another game I've done a run-through for. Latest game from designer Tim Fowers, and it is excellent. It is a t little... It's, a, it's an amazing two-player deduction, asymmetrical deduction game. Both players are playing radically different games, but they're both trying to do what the other player can do. It's a chase. One player is the fugitive, the other player is the marshal trying to stop them. It's brilliant in its simplicity and its elegance, and honestly, I don't know if my run-through does its justice. It's really something you should experience for yourself. It's it's just the bee's knees. Um, plus, who knows? Maybe uh, the final art will be on show there instead of the uh, the placeholder art that my my version had. But it's well worth seeking out the fugitive. 
Then we move on to Shadow Rift. Actually, I did a ver I did a run through for Shadow Rift first edition a million years ago, and I've been waiting patiently forever for my second edition to show up that I backed on Kickstarter, and it hasn't made it yet, but it will be there in playable form for people who haven't played Shadow Rift. Shadow Rift is awesome. I I think it might be the first cooperative deck builder, you know, before Legendary, before any of the other ones. Certainly one of the first, and it's just absolutely great. And it still does so many things that no other deck builder has done to this day. I mean, it is a game where each player is uh, building their own deck, but they're also collaborating to build a town deck that is the town they're trying to protect. Um, and the decks are getting ripped apart, and that town deck is getting ripped apart by the encroaching enemies that you have to build your own deck to make stronger to protect. It's really, really clever. And it's getting its second edition, all kinds of revamping, new art. It would be awesome to see. It's a great game to play, Shadow Rift. Then another game I've already done a run-through for, Spirit Island, which is such a cool concept. It's basically a cooperative game. Uh, imagine Settlers of Catan. You've found this new island, and you're, you know, all these colonists are coming in and settling it, and you know, building roads, and building towns, and all that. But now, and, you know, imagine a cooperative game in that setting, but you're not the settlers, you're not the colonists, you are the spirits of the island, and you view those colonists as a virus, as an infection that comes in and strip mines the land and just, you know, drives in the dust and builds all their cities and, and pushes out the indigenous peoples. And so, the spirit of the island rises up and strikes back, and that's what you're doing in this game. Players work cooperatively. It's, it's a brilliant, brilliant theme. It's very smart, fun gameplay. you got to give it a try. Spirit Island. Then we move on to Four Gods, a game I have not played. It is from designer Kristen Bollinger. I think is that how you pronounce his name? The uh, designer of... Oh, wait a minute. Hold on a second. Hold on a second. Is it? Oh, no, 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 no. Nope. You know what? Oh, this comes off the list. This... Oh, hold on. Apparently, there's two games called Four Gods. I just okay, no, I just looked up the wrong. Let me double check this. Uh, four Gods. Oh my gosh! If you go to Board Game Geek, you can do a search for Four, the number Gods, and you get a different game than the word F O U R Gods. I'm talking about the number Four and then the word Gods. Four Gods, not F O U R Gods. This is from designer uh, uh, Chris Bollinger, who previously designed. Um, uh, Archipelago, which was an absolutely brilliant 4X game where one of the where the extermination X was replaced with a negotiation, which doesn't have an X in it, but otherwise, I mean, a really really brilliant game. He's also done Dungeon Twister and Dungeon Twister the card game, also brilliant games. So this guy is a really kind of outside the box designer. He really comes up with very cool original stuff, and this is his latest thing. It is a real time tile laying game. So kind of think something like, I don't know, um, Galaxy Trucker, but set in a fantasy universe where players are gods competing to build up the best world. But here's the thing. Imagine a real-time tile-laying game like Galaxy Trucker or Mondo, but not where everybody is building their own little separate world. Everybody is laying tiles in the same area. That's mind-blowing to me. It's kind of like a, I don't know, sounds like a real-time version of real-time Carcassonne if you can imagine such a thing. 
I don't know how it's going to work, but oh my gosh. I mean, we're getting into the stuff I really, really want to try. This I really, really want to try because the designer, he's smart, he's brave, he does really offbeat things, and this is an incredible idea. I can't wait to try at some point in the, time, in the future for gods. If I were at Gen Con, I would definitely seek it out. Next up, you've got Tiny Epic Quest and Tiny Epic Galaxies Beyond the Black. Both from designer Scott Alms, Tiny Epic stuff is awesome. Getting to play the next Tiny Epic thing, that is great. I've actually gotten to play some Tiny Epic games when they were in prototype form, and it's a great experience because um, Scott and... Oh, come on. How can... I, I, I've done this so many times. I've, oh, I'm forgetting names. I'm so terrible with names. I'm good with faces. I'm terrible with names. Uh, Scott, you know, um, foe, foe. Scott Alms and Tim Foe? Oh, come on, brain. All right, just look it up. Tiny Epic. Oh, I'm so sorry. Um, oh. Gamelin Games, right. I'm just having a total epic brain fart. I'm going to feel so bad. when it, Michael Coe, Michael Coe, Michael Coe. Michael, I remembered your last name. I'm sorry, Michael. I didn't remember your name. Anyway, I have met up with Michael Coe at several conventions in the past. Every time I'm ever at a convention that Michael's at, he always seeks me out, and he lets me play his latest tiny epic game that's in development. Um, and it's always a blast because, you know, it's, it's a really great opportunity to make a really big impact and give, give feedback and, and get to see these games so early. I highly recommend it. So, seeking out both of these, the, the first expansion for Tiny Epic Galaxies, Beyond the Black, and also Tiny Epic Quest, that would be a great experience, I think. Then we move on to Sagrada, which is a dice mosaic building game. Each player apparently has their own um, grid that they're trying to fill up with dice. And that, and that represents the fact that they're making a great stain, a stained glass window for the Sagrada Familia, which is this amazing church um, that actually Jen and I have been to in real life. So you're trying to make the stained glass window, so you roll the dice, you're, tr you're trying to draft for dice, I believe, but there's all kinds of rules about how you can't have dice of the same color next to each other, you can't have dice of the same value next to each other, but there are special abilities you can get to break rules and all kinds of stuff. It just sounds cool. Uh, the closest thing I can think of was uh, last year I did a run-through for Role Player, which was another game where you were rolling dice and trying to put them in a grid, and that worked so phenomenally well. I think this is going to work great also. Uh, heck, you can almost kind of think of it as Fresco, the dice game. I'm really excited to give it a try. Um, then we move on to um, a surprise, another expansion for Alchemist, Gollum. Now, I've done a run-through for Alchemist. That was an amazing game of deduction where you have to use an app to help you basically, in real board game, or not in real time, but in, in board game terms, use the scientific method of experimentation and discovery to um, you know, publish your file. It was, it was an absolutely brilliant game. I, I, I would have to spend way too long describing how brilliant this game is, and now it's getting its first expansion. All I know is it adds golems. That's all I need to know. Now, strictly speaking, you know what? I mean, this is such a must-have. I mean, on some level, you don't have to go seek it out because you know you're going to get it if you like Alchemists. But, man, I, I want to see what it does. I want to see what the app, uh, you know, if it changes anything about the app, etc., etc. Very excited about that. Then we move on to, well, this is almost another one where, you know, I, I know I'm going to get this game guaranteed. I don't need to play, but I, I just want to play it so bad. Legends of Andor Journey to the North. 
Unfortunately, it's not for sale, apparently, at Gen Con. The long-awaited English version, because it's been available in German for like two years now. But you can still play it. I guess they'll have limited edition copies. And yeah, if I had the time, I'd probably make the time to play it, because I love Andor so much. And I cannot wait for the sequel, where you uh, spend an equal amount of time on ships as you do running around on land. It just seems so great. Then, we have one I definitely want to play, Attack on Titan, the deck-building game. And now, I actually raved about this quite a bit in a previous podcast, I think, when I saw it at Gamma. Or no, I, in my Gamma run-through. I'm really excited about this. It's another game from Cryptozoic that uses the Cerberus Ascension-style deck-building river gameplay system that's been used in DC Deck Builder and... Uh, uh, Lord of the Rings, the deck builder, and it it works okay. I've always thought it was okay, but you know, not not enough to set itself aside from you know other deck builders. Um, but even though I have absolutely zero interest in Attack on Titan, the franchise, I really love this. You remember I talked earlier when I was talking about the games you can buy. Uh, what was I talking about? Which one was it? There were a couple of games that had deck builders that introduced the notion of you use your deck builder to move around in the world. Oh, uh, Clank was one, and I forget what the other one was. But I mean, I just talked about it like an hour ago. I'm sure you guys remember. But this is another game that does that. And, um, and this game really seems to focus on your character getting all kinds of special abilities that are represented by your deck. And he's moving around. Imagine Ascension, where you can't just buy any card you want on the, you know, the river of cards. You actually have to have your character run around to get them and buy them. And there's actually, um, next to the river, because that river represents the wall that protects this, this city from these uh, invading giants, which is what the franchise is all about. The giants actually are represented by a different row of cards that come up and attack the river of cards you're trying to buy from. It just seems so cool. When it was described to me, I instantly fell in love with the idea, and I want to see if it lives up to the promise of this gameplay, because it could be really, really neat. Next up. Oh, man, we're going through this fast. That's good. Uh, we have Apocrypha, the adventure card game. And now this is basically the follow-up to the Pathfinder adventure card game from Mike Selinker and his team of fellow designers. And, you know, I mean, I've done a run-through for Pathfinder. I've talked about it at great length in the past. And, you know, it's a good, solid, um, you know, good, trashy, fun, light, dice-chucking time. Uh, we enjoy it. We love the permanence of it as you level your characters up. So, but, you know, it's interesting. I really think... This, which uses the same basic idea but does so much more. Actually, I haven't, I haven't even looked into what this does different than Pathfinder. But the fact that this is their own universe, they're not restricted or constrained by working in somebody else's universe, I can only assume means they are going to blow the doors off this system. And I can't wait to see what new they come up with for Apocrypha. And I, you know, I've been wanting to play this for several shows, and I never seem to quite... You know, I've, it's been available for demo, and I'm always too busy. But I want to try this so much. I mean, ideally, sitting down with Mike himself and... And, um, you know, talking to him about it. It would be a great um, adventure, I think. Then we've got uh, Manhattan Project Energy Empire. I've already done a run-through for this. It's not going to be available to buy. It'll just be available to play, um, which would be great for people who don't trust me when I say it's potentially going to be one of the best Euro-style games of the year. Oh my gosh, it's so good. Go watch my run-through of it to see why Jen and I fell so, so hard in love with it. If we'd actually had the... I mean, right now, it's a potential top 10 of this year. Easy, because we just the prototype I played was so good. To actually get a chance to play the near final version, that would be awesome. Then we move on to Rising 5, Runes of Asteros, which 
is another app-based game. It's another Vincent Dutrois game. It's another cooperative game. Doesn't that sound awesome? Aren't those three things by themselves enough to make you want to seek this out? Apparently, it's basically... Do you remember back in the 70s? I sure do. I played the heck out of Mastermind, me and my brother. Man, we played that to death. This, my understanding is, this is taking the basic idea of Mastermind, but giving special player powers and resources that you need to be able to collect to be able to actually make your Mastermind-style guesses to crack the code and save the day, and everybody's working cooperatively to do this. My gosh, how awesome is that? And then on top of that, I don't know how it works, but there's an app that's driving the whole thing. That's awesome sauce. I mean, of course you'd want to do that so that the app knows um, and gives you um, hints back when you're trying to actually do the mastermind portion. But on top of that, you're traveling around in this sci-fi universe illustrated by Vincent Dutrois. Tell me that doesn't sound awesome. Tell me. You can't. Everybody agrees. It sounds awesome. Come on. <laughs> All right, uh, let's calm down a bit. Oh, we're down to the final five. Only five more to talk about. As you can see, though, I'm getting very, very excited as these go on. Next up is Colony from Bezier Games, and apparently this is a, uh, a makeover of an earlier game called Age of Craft, which was an Asian, maybe Japanese, maybe Korean, I don't really know, but an Asian-developed game. And I don't know much about the original. I don't know much about this one. Here's what I know. Bezier Games, every game of theirs I've played over the last few years has been awesome. They have very good taste, very good production, really smart people, and they decided to pick this game up and bring it over and um, work on it. Ted Alsbach is listed as the co-designer because I imagine he had a lot of say, and he's a great... I mean, Suburbia is a phenomenal game. So is Macking um, you know, et cetera, et cetera. So there's that, and if that weren't enough, it's a dice drafting game. You may recall in my recent top 10 favorite gameplay mechanisms, I listed dice drafting as my number one. And it's funny, I mean, after two years of lots of high-profile dice drafting games coming out, all of a sudden, there's um, a dearth. We had a glut, and now it's gone quiet. So any dice drafting game that's coming down the pike, I'm going to be excited about, and that's why I'm excited about Colony, and I'd love to try it. After that, we go on to Phil Dubarry's Black Orchestra, which I believe used to be called Hitler Must Die, and I think it's wise for them to change the name to Black Orchestra, which apparently was the code name that the Gestapo used in World War II. That was their name for the um, underground resistance movement within the German military to assassinate Hitler. If I recall correctly, I think there was a Tom Cruise movie about this. Um, so there's a whole game about this. Now tell me that isn't... an a really interesting offbeat theme. Me personally, I'm incredibly excited about that because this is something that's real that happens. Obviously, they failed, um, but we get the chance to go back and take another stab at history. Apparently, it's a resource uh, gathering game. You got to get the you got to get Hitler into the right place. You got to get the right stuff. Uh, you have to avoid the Gestapo who's hunting you down. And here's the coolest idea in this game. Apparently, it's a cooperative game, fully cooperative. If you do get caught. Um, the game system interrogates you. You, you. you have to suffer an interrogation. Um, and what that means from a gameplay perspective is you, as a player, you cannot discuss this with any of your teammates because, of course, you've been captured. You have to make a decision. I don't know what the decision is, but you have to make a decision that affects everybody else. That is an amazing gameplay mechanism. The more I see it, the more I start to think, hey, maybe that's my favorite gameplay mechanism of all because I love that that is the main reason that Space Hulk Death Angel is still in like my top 15 games of all time, because that's so amazing. But more recently, 
Uh, if you notice, I did a run-through of The Walking Dead, No Sanctuary, which on the surface just looks like yet another zombie kill-a-thon based on The Walking Dead, but it's not. And um, one of the main reasons it's not is because that's a game that puts players in a situation where they have to make tough choices, and they are not allowed to... Um, work with their teammates. Everybody has to abide by the decision that the leader makes. In this game, the, the everybody has to deal with the decision that the captured player makes. Oh my gosh, that is so awesome. And don't get me wrong, I mean, I know some people might be put off by that because I play cooperative games to work with other people. You still get to work with other people. It's just, I mean, amongst all of the collaboration and communication, there comes this moment where all of a sudden, oh my gosh, we can't communicate anymore. For this brief moment, this incredibly important decision, all eyes turn to you, Bob, and you have to make that decision. Will he make the right decision? That's amazing to be in that hot seat. It's amazing to sit back and watch and wait and see what they do. It's a phenomenal experience. It makes cooperative gaming so much better when you occasionally have these moments where, no, you can't communicate right now. And that's a big part, apparently, thematically, of what Black Orchestra is about. And I think I said right up front, I had a phenomenal time two years ago. I actually got to sit down with Phil DeBerry and play two prototypes. It was Spirit of the Rice Paddy, and I forget remember the name of the other one, the uh, game from Game Salute, the Steam Skyway Robbers. Skyway Robbery? He's just a great, fun guy. He's just a sweet, warm, charming guy. He's a blast to sit down and play. If you get a chance to play Black Orchestra with him, take it. And I'll be jealous that I didn't get to. Then we move on to my number three. Oh, what a coincidence. Walking Dead, no sanctuary. Okay, folks, I got to warn you. I mean, I'll write down a run-through for it. Presumably, anybody who's listening to this watches my show, knows I did it. Um, it's, uh, here's the thing. This is only on Kickstarter. This is so weird. This game is only on Kickstarter for another two or three days. I think three days. Um, so, I don't know. I might, I mean, you might not be hearing this in time. But if you do, if you're even remotely interested in an amazing cooperative experience that's not Ameritrashy at all. It's all about tough decisions that players make. Uh, it's all about really interesting collaboration. It's about really interesting non-standard collaboration. Like what I was just talking about with Black Orchestra, Walking Dead has that in spades. It is an amazing experience. It is so good that my wife, after we played the game, um, when we went for a walk, she said, hey, can we play that again? I never in a million years would have thought that would have happened about a zombie game, let alone The Walking Dead. It's so good. It's only on Kickstarter for three more days. And the reason I mention this is because if you are ever think you might get this, if you don't back on Kickstarter, you are going to so regret it. It is drowning in amazing Kickstarter exclusives that will not be available in the future. Now, maybe they will. I would not be surprised. I mean, and, and the thing is, if you're waiting, oh, well, I'll wait and I'll play a demo of it because you'll be able to play it at Gen Con, the Kickstarter will be closed by then. Um, now, what I suspect is going to happen, I don't know, is that... They will, this often happens, they'll extend the, the pre order. Um, so, you know, because the Kickstarter will be closed. If you play the demo there, you can still get in even after the fact. Uh, and again, whether you get into the Kickstarter or not, if you're going to be at Gen Con, check this game out. If you like cooperative games at all, even if you hate zombies, like my wife, even if you hate The Walking Dead, like my wife, if you like cooperative games and you are looking for really um, immersive and exciting, and dare I say, daring gameplay experiences, you owe it to yourself to try it. Because if you wait for six months or eight months and then it eventually comes out and all you can buy is the commercial edition and you missed out on all these amazing Kickstarter exclusives. Daryl Dixon on a motorcycle. I mean, ah, 
folks, uh, I'm, I'm just, I'm just, it's just a, a, my last public service announcement of this um, podcast. Hopefully, it doesn't, it doesn't fall on your ears too late. Hopefully, you're not hearing this a week after Gen Con because probably by then it'll be too late. I don't know. I, I, I don't have any insider information. All I know is Jen and I, it blew our socks off. All right, and you can play it at Gen Con. So moving on, number two, the Stygian Society from designer Kevin Wilson. And I believe I talked about him earlier in this podcast. I mean, he's never been a guy who makes my favorite style of games. He does a good job. Obviously, he has a lot of really well-loved, well-respected designs. Just not Jen's in my cup of tea. But I'm so excited about this. It's my number two. I'm that excited. Here's what the game is. If you ever saw my run-through of Amerigo, it has what's called the cube tower. It's a vertical tower. There's all kinds of shelves in it. You drop cubes in. You don't know what's going to happen. Uh, some cubes get stuck on the shelves. It knocks off other cubes. It's just this really cool thing that's been around for quite a while. There's an old game called Wallenstein that got re-implemented into Shogun. And then finally, Amerigo. Two war game, area control war games. Don't care about those. And then Amerigo, a cool Euro game from Steffenfeld that really used it to good effect. And now... And actually, there's another one, but it's a three-player minimum game that is like a stock market simulation. I don't remember the name of it, but three-player minimum, so I don't care. Now, Kevin Wilson is using... Um, is, this is what? That's one, two, three, four. The fifth game in history to use, that I know of to use a, um, a cube tower. In this game, it is a cooperative fantasy adventure game where players are trying to scale the tower. And you use the cube tower to find out the results of combat. Oh my gosh, why has this taken so long to do? It's such a no-brainer. If you look at Shogun and Wallenstein and you say, wow, I love the idea of how to of not re resolving combat by dice rolling, but by using this cube tower that's so cool and deterministic, why hasn't anybody made a cooperative game before? Thank you, Kevin Wilson. If I were there, you better believe I would try to get this game played. Definitely. Although, honestly, I'm so intrigued by the idea, I'd almost buy it sight unseen, except for the fact that, you know, Kevin Wilson, again, it's no fault on him. He just makes different kinds of games than we like. So I pro this is definitely one I would want to check out. I would definitely want to try before you buy. And again, I'm very jealous of people at Gen Con who will get to and I will not. And then the last one, the number one. You know what? I've actually played this game quite a bit. So I'm not missing this for myself. Um, although, you know, actually, I probably would play this anyway. Even though I've played it, if I were Gen Con, I would probably seek Isaac, the designer, out and see if I could play the latest version of Gloomhaven. Because... This is a legacy fantasy adventure game that is so bold and so audacious in the epic scope and scale of its design. Um, you know, just in terms of the uh, how much it does, um, you know, it, it you know it puts your sea falls and your pandemic legacies and your risk legacies to shame. It, it takes legacy to an eleven. It is doing so much stuff, and um, you know, it, it is so ambitious. I would love to hang out. Play a play a session or two of you know it's it's absolutely awesome, card driven Euro style um, fantasy combat and learn what all the latest tricks are in you know what it's t t intending to do to take legacy style gaming to the next level. And actually, for a lot of people, I think they'd be interested because unlike the other legacy games, you know honestly, I think with time is passing. You might not be able to call this a legacy game because I think Isaac is trying to come up with ways to ensure that you could reset the world. Maybe by um, you know, being able to purchase a reset kit or something like that. That's something that a lot of people asked for with Pandemic Legacy. Anyway, all I'm saying is Isaac Childress, the designer of this, is incredibly open to feedback. He wants to play with as many people as possible. This is really something you could have a big impact on. And if you have strong feelings about legacy gameplay and you um, strong feelings about fan you owe it to yourself to play 
this game in its non-final form at Gen Con. And that's it, folks. That was a list of 40-some games that you can't buy, but you should still play anyway. Phew! And Dobby is shivering with excitement. It is totally walk o'clock. She wants to go. So, folks, we'll, um, I don't know if i got anything more to say, but I'm going to take her for a walk when I come back. If I can think of anything, I'll be right back. Okay, well, went for a walk. Couldn't really think of anything to add. I wouldn't be surprised in two days if there's plenty to add because, once again, like I complained about right up front, publishers decide only at the last second to tell the world about the games they're going to have there. Although, I guess to be fair, maybe they only know themselves at the last second if they'll have... Uh, maybe I'm being a bit too harsh. Ah, uh, speaking of harshness, or rather whininess, apologies, I don't know. I was really playing the world's smallest violin for myself a few times there. Uh, thanks for sticking uh, through that with me. Hmm, if I had the strength, I might go and edit all that stuff out, but not, 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 not. When Rado talks through, it's warts and all. You'll get it all. So, hopefully, some of you found this useful or entertaining or whatever it is you get out of my dulcet tones, which are thoroughly shredded now. Man, I can, I really sound different in my head. And so I think we're going to end it right there, folks. Like I said up front, next month, it'll be a full episode devoted to Q&A with Jen to make up for her absence this time. And oh boy, as always, questions can go to questions at rotto.com. So feel free to hit me up. Otherwise, hope you have a very, very nice day. Talk to you later. So long. Oh, bye-bye.